at Sif Pop. We're your movie friends. But are friends really friends? If you don't know them. So grab a popcorn. And head over to our row. So we can chat movies. Like friends do. There's always room. For more movie friends. So sit back. Relax. And enjoy the show. Welcome. 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 To the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sip Pop Writer's Room. My name is not Aaron, it's in fact Robert. I'm one of the editors at SipPop.com, and today I'm joined by two Sip Pop writers. Uh, Sip Pop writer Luke. Hello. And Sip Pop writer Heath. Hello. We are here today to talk about some of the biggest movie releases of December 2023. Uh, this is a little bit of a different type of review roundup because instead of doing, you know, eight or nine movies with a couple wild cards, I think we have 16 on the list. We're not doing any wild cards and we're not going to be um, listing our favorite movies of the year at the end because quick plug, uh, we're going to be doing the giant put together episode of every Sif Pop writer saying their favorite top five movies that Aaron puts together every year. So keep your eye out for that in the feed. So here's our mega December episode because everything releases this month. This is what we're going to be talking about. American Fiction, Anyone But You, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, The Color Purple, Eileen, Ferrari, Godzilla Minus One, The Iron Claw, Leave the World Behind, Maestro, May, December, Poor Things, Rebel Moon Part One, A Child of Fire, Silent Night, and Wonka. I'm going to say what I've been saying the last couple months. We're not planning on spoilers, but if they come up, we'll talk around the spoilers when we're on the movie and then come back to them at the end. And lastly, we'll be rating each and every movie on this list on the classic Sif Pop scale of like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay. So with that, let's get into these movies. And let's start alphabetically with American Fiction, directed by Cord Jefferson, starring Jeffrey Wright, Sterling K. Brown, Issa Rae, Myra Lucretia Taylor, and many more. Luke didn't get to see this one because apparently American Fiction is only released in America for now. So Heath and I are going to be having a quick discussion Heath, what did you think of this? High side of just okay. High side of just okay. I will go a little bit higher than you and say low side of liked it because I thought it was quite entertaining, if not, you know, pretty uneven throughout with its two separate storylines. I don't know how well the two mesh together. And I have a feeling that's probably what's keeping you on high side of okay. You got it. Again, not spoiling anything, but we'll just mm-hmm. say very plainly, and, and, and it's a shame because this isn't even inherently the movie itself's fault, but the marketing is really screwing this film over. Uh, I know most people haven't seen this yet because it's not released uh, around the world to people like Luke. Even in America, it's still in limited release at this very moment. I was only mm-hmm. able to see it because of a screener. Um, so I'll just simply say that the marketing illustrates this as a witty satire black comedy about the nature of media and hyping black stories and how it uses stereotypes to generate money and a whole commentary on that all of that stuff in the movie is awesome i loved it i was laughing my ass off it's incredibly funny it's well written the jokes are witty and cutting uh, the line deliveries are great. All of that's awesome. But that is maybe 20 to 25% of the movie. The other 80 to 75% of the movie is an entirely different storyline that the marketing does not let on whatsoever. That feels like an insane tonal, cra- like insane whiplashy, almost total crash 
to this hyper satirical comedy. I'm talking like real familial drama stuff going on. Now, that storyline is also good, mm-hmm. but it just feels like it's at a complete odds with the other storyline. Even if it wasn't for the marketing, I still don't know if I would have cared for these two styles meshing well together because I, I just don't feel that they do. Like it really, I, I can't stress enough. It gives me whiplash when it goes between the two storylines because they are not on the same tone whatsoever. Um, but once you look past that, and even even then, I would say some of the themes, there are overlapping themes. And again, I don't want to get into them because I would reveal the other storyline and all that. But uh, the themes are not strong on the Venn diagram of overlapping in the middle. The overlapping themes are not strong. The separate themes about the familial drama and the yeah. satirical book storyline, yeah. I think are strong. But the overlapping themes, I think, are weak. So, And that's another reason why I think uh, it doesn't tie together perfectly. But still enjoyable. Great performances, especially from Sterling K. Brown. Uh, Jeffrey Wright. Uh, I liked a lot of what it was doing. I just, uh, yeah, I could, I could, it just, it, it was a tonal disparity. I could never get past. Yeah. I pretty much agree with you (laughs) all the way through, except it just didn't bother me as much. Um, That's totally fair. Yeah. Right. Uh, Maybe it's because, I don't know. I saw the trailer a good amount of times, but um, the marketing didn't really factor into how I was watching the movie. It's just like, oh, I don't remember this part from the marketing. And I just kind of settled into what it was. Sure. Um, so I agree that each movie, like if you want to call it two separate movie, two separate movies, each one works on its own, but not, not necessarily together. But part of me thinks that might be intentional. Um, and I think that's part of the extra meta satirical part of the movie that it's like we said, it's, it's about here. I didn't read the synopsis. It's about a novelist who's fed up with the establishment profiting from black entertainment, uh, using a pen name to write a book that propels him to the heart of hypocrisy and the madness he claims to disdain. So, uh, Jeffrey Wright's character sees this book that uses all these black stereotypes. Um, and he fancies himself a very serious novelist, um, who never gets the recognition that he feels that he deserves Yet this book that he finds to be, you know, basically offensive in a lot of ways, uh, he finds it to be crap, but it's very popular and people are loving it. So he sarcastically basically writes his own version of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes off to his own, you know, dismay. So he's very upset about that. And that all works really well. And I like you, I like that. Uh, satirical I thought the angle. book storyline was fascinating. That was yeah. awesome. And if it had just been that, then the movie might have felt a little bit light because, you know, lacking on emotion. Um, But just the way that it brings in the emotion doesn't seem, like you said, doesn't seem to jive with everything else. Yeah. Um, And to to give a real clear picture of when I say these are two different things and the book storyline is like maybe 25% of the runtime, he doesn't even start writing his own book until 35 minutes into this movie. Over a quarter of the way through the movie is when he actually starts that storyline. Like, it really is not the focus of this movie. Um, So it's that, yeah, and it sounds like, Robert, it just didn't bother you as much, which is totally fine. Based off of the reviews, it sounds like most people are in that boat where 
I've seen a lot of people say, oh yeah, there's a little bit of a tonal shift. It's hard to get used to, but if you do, it's great. I, I just never got used to it. And that's, that's okay too. I did find, find myself moved by the family storyline and I thought that worked yes. on its own. Um, mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I would just kind of found myself itching to get back to the satire part, back to the comedy. Um, I agree with that too. You said Sterling K. Brown as your first name when you're uh, praising the performances, and that's because he's great, and he's in that family storyline. But again, yes. it... Yeah, I, I thought Jeffrey Wright was great. I actually thought Sterling K. Brown was even better, and yeah, uh, Brown is not in the book storyline at all. He's in the family storyline. Right. Yeah. Um, but they're both terrific. The one hard criticism, and I don't think I've seen many people say this, but I will say this about the movie, is that in the book storyline, the essential criticism, or not the essential, one of the big criticisms is Mm -hmm. that media uses black stereotypes to perpetuate black stories um, and how wrong that is that we're not listening to black voices be authentic, even if it doesn't fit the stereotypical mold. But the movie itself almost becomes a reflection of that thing it's 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 trying to critique. And that really did bother me because this goes back to the split storylines and the, the tones. If this had been marketed as just a familial drama about a black family that's going through tough times, I would have been very interested in that. But it's very telling to me that at no point in any marketing or even the synopsis, Robert, that you just read, Does anyone ever mention that? Like no one, no websites talked about that. And they are using the satirical book storyline as the hook to draw people in, which in and of itself is the very criticism that the movie is trying to make fun of. So I find that very ironic that the movie itself is literally falling for its own trap and it's using stereotypical black, you know, stories as a way to hook people into a deeper story that could be intentional and even a meta joke on top of itself. And that's totally fair, but I still think it's, it's very weird that if you're trying to prove this point that we don't need these stereotypical things that we can authentically listen to black voices, regardless of what story they're telling, then why can't we even hint at what the actual story of this movie is that that felt a little icky to me. So I, I was dancing around that, um, and I think that's the part that I think is intentional. Again, not okay. considering the marketing, but considering the movie itself, I did find that to be in there like as part of the text. Um, sure. And there's even a scene, you'll know what scene I'm talking about, like uh, Jeffrey Wright and Issa Rae are having lunch, um, yeah. and the, she's talking about, like, this is how we get our voices uh heard by talk by leaning into these stereotypes and he's like can't we show that we're different and it never really the movie never really commits to one side or the other there's Um, no resolution in that right there's no resolution and i think that's intentional Mm -hmm. um it's presenting these ideas and just kind of saying it kind of feels like the movie itself is the movie's proposing a question yeah the movie's proposing a question of do you guys see there's a problem Here's what we think the problem is, and what are your thoughts on it? And it's more or less asking the audience, and it and it and it breeds conversations just like this, where it wants us to, you know, dissect and deconstruct, and we can analyze. Yes, is there a problem, and if so, how do we fix it? Which yeah, is interesting it, that the movie's not outright stating this is the problem. Here's the solution. Right. It, I do I, give the movie credit for that. 
to me, it's it's trying to start that conversation, like you said, and then say like, here we open the door. Now more black uh, storytellers come through, and um, you know, forget the satirical side and just start telling stories of people that don't have to do with black trauma and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just present them as people in the world, um, and I think that's I commend it for that. But still, <laughs> like we keep coming back to as a whole, the two sections don't really yeah. mesh oh. perfectly. I'll be interested if I if I do rewatch this. I, I w- would expect suspect that I do at some point in time. And if mm-hmm. I do, you know, knowing what the story is actually about, I I wonder if the I'll notice the tonal shift as much. If it will bother me as much or sure. or not. So that that'll be interesting upon rewatch. Let's move on to anyone but you, directed by Will Gluck, starring Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell. After an amazing first date, B and Ben's fiery attraction turns ice cold until they find themselves unexpectedly reunited at a destination wedding in Australia. So they do what any two mature adults would do, pretend to be a couple. Uh, <laughs> Luke, we kind of shut you off for about 10 minutes. Let's hear what you have to say about anyone but you. So on a top scale, I w- would say I liked the movie and we can get we can debate why after. Sure. Uh, I'll quickly say I on the Sif Pop scale, low side of like it. Yeah, Sif Pop scale, low side of like it. Quality, that's a different thing, but Sif Pop yeah. scale, low side of liked it. So we are right, pretty much that's... same in the same kind of pool here, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. We, we yeah. probably have very similar opinions on this one. Yeah. And again, because it is the, that kind of movie, isn't it? If you, like what I put in my review on Letterboxd is if you were to search raunchy rom-com, the mm-hmm. poster for this movie would, would have come, come up. That's you know it is what it is. Do you know where this is is going? You know why this is going like that because we've seen it m- done many times before. The two things that differ here, they've casted the super attractive hot people of the uh, of the era right now. <laughs> so you know the movie is great to look at in more than one way, and the Australian <laughs> setting, the Australian setting when we went down under, I was kind of worried. Still not convinced that... it's a real place. Yeah. Yes. Oh shame! Uh, I was I was worried that we will have a lot of these like Aussie jokes and many people attempting like Australian accent just for the laughs and you know those kind of stereotypes. And there are definitely some of those. However, I I thought the movie actually did a good job, like you know, holding back. I think it could have gone way more over the top. And I I feel like that's also about the movie itself. It was, yes, there are some scenes that are obviously very over the top, aka Glenn Powell's strip scene, you know, the, the spider scene, all in the koala scene. Kind of, it's pretty much the same, and pretty much the, that's all within one set piece, really. Right. Uh, but I feel like as a whole, it, the movie felt grounded because, you know, it's about like families coming together, very weird families coming together. And I think we can all relate to that, minus the, you know, I don't know if your family, you know, consists of so many hot people at the same time, you know. <laughs> I don't know whether that's that's as relatable, but that's a discussion for another I time. don't think about my family in those terms, to be honest. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've said it many times before, I'm the perfect target audience for a three-star rom-com, and that's exactly how many stars I gave this one on Letterboxd. Like, it plays, like... Unlike any rom-com I've seen in recent years, it plays the hits. You know, yep. like the they uh, enemies to lovers. It's exactly yep. how you expect it to play out. And I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. Um, where the problems do come in for me is just that 
I think the those family that you were talking about, Luke, I think they're all just kind of cardboard and not very interesting characters. I like the Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell characters, and I think there's a decent amount of comedy derived from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, I think it feels fairly kind kind of standard around it. Um, mm-hmm. The best kind of rom-coms to me are when there's memorable supporting characters just coming out and doing wacky things. Uh, I will so I will say Dermot Mulroney is amazing in this, um, <laughs> but beyond him, the extended characters are, are just eh, whatever. Um, but I do like the much ado about nothing Shakespeare format, which it plays direct homage to towards the end, like it, like you see the terms much ado about nothing uh, mm. on the screen. So they even interject quotes like randomly throughout the movie. Yep. Yeah, it's it's just fun. Yeah, I I feel the exact same way. Um, this is this is a rom-com that fell out of the rom-com plot tree and hit every stereotype and trope branch on the way down. And mm-hmm. you know what? That's fine because it actually executes on those tropes and stereotypes pretty well. Like I yeah. still found myself laughing when the movie wanted me to laugh. Um, I, I cringed when the movie wanted me to cringe. Like uh, Robert, I felt much like you. I was like, this is a three star down the middle just fine movie but you know what i at least had fun with it glad i watched I was, it yeah yeah i'm mm-hmm. glad i watched it it was it was lighthearted. sometimes you just need a breezy movie like this uh, only 103 minutes it had sexy people doing sexy things it, it was fine like mm-hmm. and uh, i think sometimes we just need movies like that and there's nothing wrong with that i did love the much ado about nothingness of it all um mm-hmm. i didn't know that about the movie coming in and before they even started like putting up the quotes i'm like they're doing the rumor thing for much ado about nothing. Is this, is this supposed yeah. to be much? And then they kept doing the rumor thing. I'm like, yeah, no, this is much ado about nothing. And that actually made it more fun for me. Um, but yeah, no, it's just completely fine. Fun, simple rom-com. Speaking of much ado about nothing though, I would just rather watch the nineties brand version, which is yes, a I lot would more too. fun. <laughs> yeah. That's an excellent movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, the last thing I wanted to mention real quick about this was I, even though this joke was being beat to death and I kind of was annoyed by it, I eventually came around when the credits uh, happened. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but I really love the credit sequence here. The song? Yeah. 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 The first line in my review was, damn, I didn't know Natasha Bedingfield was hurting so bad for royalty money. Because <laughs> they got some use out of that one. But it was and cute. Will Gluck- yeah, the, cre- the credits was fun. Will Gluck did... Um, Easy A, which heavily features Pocketful of Sunshine, so he's yep. he's given you lots of or given her lots yep. of royalty money, and I love Easy A as well. So if, oh, if Will wants a, to keep Easy five stars, yeah, I I actually think Easy A is is a modern teen masterpiece. Uh, but if if Will wants to keep making fun, lighthearted, silly movies like this, I'm all for it. Just please turn out one of these every three four years. I'm happy. See. Let's move on then to Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, directed by James Wan, starring Jason Momoa, Patrick Wilson, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, and many more faces that you'll recognize and names you'll know. Black Mana seeks revenge on Aquaman for his father's death. Wielding the Black Trident's power, he becomes a formidable foe. To defend Atlantis, Aquaman forges an alliance with his imprisoned brother. They must protect the kingdom. Uh, I'll start real quick. It takes a lot for me to say I really hated a movie, so I'm not going to say I hated this, but I'll say low side of didn't like it. Uh, I'm straight fastball down the middle didn't like this. I thought it was just okay. Let's start with you then, Luke. Uh, let's get some positives out of the way. You are obviously higher than us, so what What about it was just okay? 
I thought it's a breezy two-hour movie. I thought if you if you specifically rank it amongst the other DCEU movies, it's definitely not the worst one of them at all. Jason Mamoa is having fun, and mm-hmm. some scenes I had fun with him, even though um, the best character was, and his name just escapes me, Randall Park. Randall Park just steals yeah. the movie for me. Uh, but again, it's not a great movie by any means. It's just one of those... It's a movie that came out in 2023. So I don't think I would spend my money on it, to be honest. But have I regret, you know, I don't have any regrets seeing it. It's just, I'm not going to remember it in a month as well. So that's there. It just unceremoniously ended the DCEU. Just like, all right, now we're done. Which that's that's only one point. I was quite sad to see this end because the movie, how it ends... It does something I've uh, I always kind of wanted to see explored. So it's almost a shame this this DCU ends because you know now we're gonna get the James you know Gunn movies yeah. or movies under his overall direction. So I kind of wanted to see a, maybe a sequel with how this movie is ended without going into spoilers because I thought it would be a cool idea to to explore. You really want Patrick Wilson eating burgers? Yes, movies about that. (laughs) Yes, this was a whimper of a death rattle for the DCEU. I uh, so for me personally, uh, DC is my my favorite. I like DC more than Marvel. I like the those characters more than Marvel characters. I am very much in the minority there, especially these days. More people love Marvel because of the MCU, and that's fine. Used to not be the case, but nowadays it's pervasive. but I've gotten used to the fact that DC and Warner Brothers mishandle the characters I love so much. Case in point, my favorite character of all time is Green Lantern, and we all know how that went. So um, <laughs> I, I kind of come into these expecting a little bit of disappointment, especially with the DCEU specifically. And I still left this just thinking, I just wanted a movie. I would have preferred a movie about Topo, the snarky drum playing octopus over what we got. And you know what? That's, I still feel that way. Uh, a couple days later, uh, this is just, it, it, you could just tell that they're like, Oh, this is the end. We're going to be done. So let's just, let's just get it out there. Uh, you could feel the rewrites and the reshoots in this. You could tell that Mira was supposed to have a much bigger part in the story. And because of the Amanda heard of it all, they're like, oh, okay, but about that, Amber. let's completely change Amber. it up. And the whole movie just feels very disjointed and disconnected because of that. Um, it it just feels sluggish. I actually felt it wasn't a breezy two hours. I'll slightly push back on you there, Luke, because for yeah. me, it was a drag. It was a bit of a slog. The most fun I had with the movie was in the second act when Jason and Patrick Wilson just kind of get to be brothers and mm-hmm. get to banter with each other. And like, we kind of learn a little bit more about their characters and they do this like weird James Bond-esque invasion of a secret volcano layer. Like that was fine. Um, I, I at least was mildly entertained there. I thought Patrick Wilson was at least trying, but the rest of the movie outside of that, I thought was actively bad. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really is a shame how much of this was just underdeveloped. I thought Yahya Abdul-Mateen II was just, completely underutilized um especially because his whole shtick was i'm not even this bad i'm being possessed which is just so lame 
And then mm-hmm. when we get to the final fight, it's supposed to be against this huge, like, undead army in this ancient kingdom and, like, nothing. It's resolved in, like, a second. The the trident fight at the end of Aquaman 1 went longer than this by, like, five minutes. And the, it's bizarre to me that the, the resolution is just throw trident, game over. And I just, <laughs> I don't know. It, it just felt like they just wanted to get it over with, which to an extent I can understand. They're just wanting to turn the page. They're like, yeah, we're done with the DCEU. The gunner verse is coming. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like you put hundreds of millions of dollars into these products, man. Don't you want to recoup some of that money? Even if you know you're not going to continue, like don't you at least still want to put out a decent product? And this is not a decent product. To me, it seems like Yaya Abdul-Mateen is in a different movie than everyone else too. Uh, yeah. He's doing a classic you know, superhero villain, intense, you know, I'm going to kill Aquaman type of thing. And everyone else is just. And Jason Momoa is literally running into walls, like being goofy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I've seen obviously so many superhero movies now. And I've heard mm-hmm. lots of superhero gobbledygook spewed by very good actors. But for some reason, you know, Jason Momoa, Patrick Wilson, Nicole Kidman, all these people, they do the worst job <laughs> in a long time that I've seen. None of them seem convinced by what they're saying they're just mm-hmm. you know there for a paycheck like i i will even disagree that jason momoa seems like he's having fun um he might have been having fun shooting it but like it doesn't come across especially when Heath, you and i talked about this a few months ago on this podcast uh mm-hmm. fast x came out earlier this year where he's obviously having so much fun and just uh mm-hmm. putting everything into the role here he's just like all right i'm doing aquaman again I don't know. I, that's I why I specifically kinda... mentioned like the second act brothers dialogue. That's where I could feel he was having you know, that. That is literally the part where he throws himself at a wall and is just being right. goofy and like, and, and that, that, so that's the part that I enjoyed because it felt more authentic, but everything mm-hmm. else outside of that. Yeah. It, and the, just and... to kind of reiterate what I meant by having mm-hmm. fun. I meant the first <laughs> line of his dialogue is yeah. I'm Aquaman, Aquaman. I speak to the fish. Like, you know, right. he, and he sells it. Like, he understands his character is always going to be the butt of a joke. You know, it's always going to be, oh, this is the guy who speaks to the fish. Ha ha. And, you know, like, I feel like, you know, he, uh, again, I wasn't on the set. Maybe he wasn't having fun. But from what I've seen on the screen, like, he at least sells it in both Aquaman and in this sequel. He at least sells that character. He's always, he doesn't blink. He never, you know, winks at the camera. He's like, oh, I'm just doing it for money. Ha ha. No, like, he, he at least feels earnest. I haven't seen Fast X, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I've, I've heard the tales yeah. of wild uh, Jason Momoa in that movie. Uh, but again, like if you have an Aquaman, I a DCU for all the things they've done wrong, I don't think the casting was you know, wrong for most of these characters. And I think we actually worked as Aquaman. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm surprised. I will, I'll be like, you know, on the lookout to see who's going to be in the next Aquaman. I wouldn't mind him coming back, to be honest, but, yeah. you know, we'll see. I don't think he was cast poorly. I'll say that. Uh, I don't think I don't ever think he was cast poorly. Uh, my problem with what you were just saying, that opening felt like Taika Waititi Thor and Thor bit, Love and yes. Thunder, not Thor Ragnarok. Um, and part of what has been tiring me so much about all these comic book movies is that they all have to be winky and self-aware and... Mm-hmm. Not, you know, not that they don't take themselves seriously, not not only that they don't take themselves seriously, but that they're kind of ashamed of what they are. Um, mm-hmm. The first Aquaman, 
I think is just okay. I'm not as high as everyone else. Um, or maybe the consensus that is just okay. But mm-hmm. for me, it takes itself seriously. And that's what makes the silliness fun. Um, this one opens up with I'm Aquaman. I talk to fish and I'm just like, Oh, okay. You, you're embarrassed of what you are. So why should I be invested in, in your movie? And that's kind of what I feel in the second or the third, fourth, whatever Thor movie, the latest Thor movie. Um, mm-hmm. And that's also what I felt here. Um, does it, is he embarrassed? Like, does that line mean he's embarrassed or does that line, you know, invites you, Hey, you, you you know, you can, you know, feel free to laugh at me. This is fine. I'm not embarrassed. I'm embrace it. Does it, it doesn't feel to me like that line was like, Oh, I'm embarrassed because I talked to the fish. No. Hey, I know who I, you know who I am. So feel free to laugh at me. Well, Aquaman has always had the reputation that he's the dorky one who talks to mm-hmm. fish, right? Yeah, and yeah. that's why in the first one it just kind of has the the giant squid playing drums and all all this yeah. kind of stuff. It, it feels silly, but this one it just says like, "Hey, we're silly. We know too." Like mm-hmm. to me, there's a mm-hmm. fine line of like being silly and telegraphing that you know you're silly to okay. you know seem like you can sit at the table with the cool kids. And that's what this one feels like to me. All right. Let's move on to chicken run Dawn of the nugget directed by Sam fell starring Tandiwe Newton, Zachary Levi, Bella Ramsey and more. You guys saw this one. So I'm going to let you guys take it from here. It's one of the few that I missed just with the holiday shuffle and everything going on. I thought it was high side, high side of it's just okay. And low side of liked it. I am straight down the middle, just okay. Mm. I see, like, I always find these movies, like, I, when it comes to these, like, you know, claymation style animations, especially British ones, like Wallace and Gromit and all of these, I never found them as charming as others. And I always feel bad, because especially with this one, you can see the amount of patience, the time, the craft that went into the movie, because that movie looks amazing, you know, it's stellar. The story, it just never, like, it grips you to a point, but the moment that there is, like, some key things revealed, you kind of see what it is going. I appreciate that, you know, this is more focused on, a, you know, the original Chicken Run was the, you know, Great Escape. Now this is more into the kind of future. So I, I appreciated that aspect, but I'm not quite sure whether I was totally entertained throughout, which, again... I feel bad for saying that because it just, you know, it, the movie looks like it took so much years to get made. Yeah. I, uh, if the original was the great escape, I don't know if this is a specific movie, but this is more of a heist genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was just okay because it's actually just kind of a rehash of the first movie. And mm-hmm. not only is it a rehash, but it's a weaker rehash. Um, if the first movie is a prison break, this mm-hmm. is also a prison break, but they actually break into the prison first and then they yep. break people out of the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, uh, just that in and of itself kind of distills the energy of this movie where it's just like it's it's the same but different. It, mm-hmm. You're going to have the same vibes, but they're not as intense because you've already seen it before. Uh, the humor didn't hit as hard. Um, the jokes just weren't as good. Uh, the there's a, a nice little storyline about like kind of the youngling leaving the nest, but that felt a bit tropey. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's fine, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the best way I could describe it is if the first movie was a family film that works for 
kids and adults. This is just a kid's film. I don't think there's anything really in here for adults that they're going to really latch onto and enjoy. Whereas the first film gave us that. Um, and this is not that. The only real aside I would say is that they recast the two lead voice performers um, from the original film to this one. One of them was Mel Gibson. So I get yes. it why you'd want to do that. Mel Gibson is Mel Gibson. Uh, but even still, Zachary Levi is no Mel Gibson when it comes to charisma and voice performance. And that is a markedly different performance. But the biggest one is uh, that they recast the original um, Julie. I'm not going to pronounce this wrong. It's Julia Swa Swa Swala. I'm going to, I'm sorry. I know that's incorrect, but they recast it with Andy Newton and they said it was because Julia was too old, which is insane yeah. that they said you're too old, even though it's only been 23 years, but mm -hmm. Disney is still using James Earl Jones for star Wars and Mufasa. And he did that for 46 and 29 years respectively. And it's just, I don't know. It feels really offensive to me that they decided this woman is too old to voice mm -hmm. this character. Uh, and she had so much more spark and charisma to her than Thandi Newton has here. Um, so those voice recasting decisions bothered me. Um, but that's a more movie snobbish thing. And I'm sure most kids would have no idea what the hell I'm talking about who are watching this movie. And that's fine. Um, but overall, I thought it was fine. It's simple uh, entertainment. Kids are going to probably enjoy it. Um, but... Uh, if if you were to ask me, I would recommend just going back and watching the original one. See, that's the thing, right? I've only watched the original once, and it must be now almost 20 years. So mm -hmm. it, the recast didn't bother me. I thought Tandiva did a great job. Uh, it's just, again, like casting Zachary Levi, you know, replacing Mel Gibson with Zachary Levi, who has his own bag <laughs> of issues right now. Well, not right now, yeah. but look, has had some issues in the past. I'm not quite sure whether that was a clever decision, but I guess he is the guy to go, you know, to go to when even you want your animated movie because he's done more than one. <laughs> so yeah, I he just was thought entangled, again, right? Yes, yes, I think there was like, like not breakthrough, but like, yeah, yeah. And I think there's like you know, isn't he in the super pet? Like I haven't seen it, but isn't he like one of the super pets as well? Like I, have I haven't no seen it. But I'm pretty sure he's voiced quite a few now. So this is not this is not his second movie, like animated movie. I'm pretty sure he's voiced quite a few now. And again, like his voice, like you know, Tandiva has got a nice voice. She didn't bother me. Again, had I seen the original movie more than once, probably would have been in the same boat as Sahif. But I didn't. <laughs> him, I I can take him and leave him. I never found Levi charming as much. And you know, minus the baggage. And with the baggage, yeah, I just don't really care for him. So, but again, the movie stunning to look at. If it's on Netflix, so you don't have to pay anything for it. If it was in the cinemas, would I recommend you checking it out? I, probably not. Even though, again, it feels wrong because the amount of work it should definitely get an Oscar nomination. The claymation style is the animation beautiful. is terrific. Argument yes, once like, again knocking that out of the park. No, hundred percent. And again, like it should be recognized, and that's why I always feel bad for saying. I kind of enjoyed it and I didn't love it. So, yeah. Let's move on then to oh. The Color Purple, directed by Blitz Bazawul, starring Fantasia Barino, Taraji P. Henson, Danielle Brooks, Coleman Domingo. 
A woman faces many hardships in her life, but ultimately finds extraordinary strength and hope in the unbreakable bonds of sisterhood. This is, there was a colored purple book, right? And mm-hmm. the original mm-hmm. movie, Spielberg movie was based on that book. Mm-hmm. Is, is this the same situation as Mean Girls where it was adapted to a stage play and that stage play is now a, yes. a, a yep. movie? All right. Yeah, so it. that's our situation here. Uh, this is the musical Color Purple. Um, I'll start real quick and say, I like this. Straight, yeah, like he has been saying, straight down the middle, liked it. Luke, I don't remember. Did you say you missed this one? I missed it because the UK thing, you know, UK people don't want to see this kind of musical here, like in December. Mm. So we have it in 26th of January, which kind of bums me, as we discussed, Robert and I discussed it on a Sitfo Writer's Room, the original movie, you know, a few months ago. So I was kind of looking forward to this. Oh, that's right. You were on that. Yep. Oh, that's a bummer. Now that no I forgot that you were the one on, on that one. <laughs> it's all right. I am on the high side of just okay for this one for, uh, unfortunately, very similar tonal reasons to American fiction, which we'll get into. Mm. Uh, just go for it. I'm interested now. Okay. Um, so I have not seen the stage production, to be very clear. I don't know how this plays on stage as a musical. So I'm solely judging this off of this movie as a musical Uh, and to also be clear uh, I love musicals I watch musicals all the time I have season tickets to my local outdoor uh, municipal theater that I go and see multiple shows every summer and I love the color purple it is one of my favorite movies I think it's actually in my top 100 films of all time so this should be right up my alley unfortunately I found this movie's tone to be incredibly off-putting um and i don't know again I, I would i would imagine that this is not an inherent part of a, a problem with the musical because if the musical was so successful on broadway and they decided to make a film out of it you know it, obviously something is working and i'll even admit that i'm in the minority most people are really liking this movie so far if not loving it um but I'll just give a couple of examples and I feel like I'm not spoiling anything to be clear. Cause this is still you know, the, the, the story is the same as a story from a movie that came out in the eighties. You know, we're talking yeah. 35, 40 years ago. So the story is already out there. Um, but uh, I don't know if you did a synopsis uh, Robert on this one, but essentially yeah. it's uh, this uh, these two sisters that are uh, maligned and mistreated in their youth. Uh, they are separated as one of the sisters, Seely, is married off to an older man named Mister, um, and Mister really mistreats her throughout her entire life. Uh, and the other sister uh, goes away, uh, and it's all about them trying to connect with each other and Seely trying to find love, and about the people that Seely meets along the way uh, until she finally learns to, not learns to. That's probably the wrong phrase, but finally uh, can stand up for herself and have some kind of self-confident in life. Um, So that's inherently the story. But I'm going to give two examples to what didn't work for me. One is Celie is at one point physically assaulted, beaten, and then raped. Uh, Again, that's horrible to say, but that is what happens in this movie. It's what happens in the original. So just be prepared. That's the kind of content we're getting into when we talk about this story. But the song immediately following this is an upbeat, hopeful, jovial song called Keep It Moving. And the lyrics are all about keeping your head held high and keep moving along and everything's going to be fine. And I'm sorry, that is 
awful to me. Uh, apparently, this song was an original song that they made just for the movie, and it wasn't in the original musical. So again, this is what leads me to believe that the musical version, the stage production is probably more succinct because how dare they do that? I think that's insane to just brush aside rape and just be like, oh yeah, not a big deal. Keep your chin up. You're fine. And like, I thought that was borderline disgusting. There's another point later on where Sophia is beaten and jailed for the audacity for the quote unquote crime of being a black person standing up to a white couple um and this white woman wants to in a sense enslave her by making her be her maid against sophia's will and when sophia says no to this woman uh the man strikes her and beats her and she hits him back and then a whole bunch of white men like corral her and jail her and the song after that is a reprise of an earlier song called hell no and the lyrics are about how women need to stand up to men and how women are being mistreated and that doesn't also fit with the previous confrontation when the previous confrontation was about race uh and this happens a lot throughout the course of the movie there are songs that directly contradict at bare minimum tonally if not even lyrically the previous scene that preceded it and that's just not how you construct musicals. And it just felt really weird to me. And this happened a lot. And because of that, I could never get invested in these characters and the story. And that's someone, again, who loves this story. I love the original film. And I just couldn't get into this. And so when we did get to the hard-hitting emotional moments that come at the end of the story, which are incredibly powerful... It just did not work for me. Um, I was not invested at that point. And man, it was just, it was bizarre. It was baffling. Um, so that's my biggest reason as to why this didn't work for me. And again, just like American fiction, it was a tonal thing. I I, mm-hmm. I could never get on the wavelength, the tone of, of this film. Uh, Luke, I saw you politely raise your hand. Did you have a question, good sir? <laughs> no, not even a question, just an observation as a person who hasn't seen this particular version, but seen a movie, and actually talked about it with Robert, and I raised a similar point. I couldn't see at a time, because we talked about how this is going to come out in December, and I was like, this is a very dark story. And it yeah. turned it into a musical, even though it's based on a play. Like, you know, I had the same thing. I was like, like, are we going to just disregard all the rape and stuff? Like, you know, like, how, like I understand and Robert raised a point of, well, Le Miserable is also quite dark. I was like, yeah, but it's not as dark. So, and I just... That, Did I say that, that whole... back on the other episode? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it was you or Aaron, one of you guys brought up Le Miserable, and I was like, fair, but also, I don't think Le Miserable is as dark as Color Purple. So anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, like I just kind of find it fascinating to see to hear he you know he's talking about what I was worried about back in like March or whenever we recorded that episode. I will still yeah. see it, but it's just fascinating to hear like you know like f- for you it hasn't played because of this re- uh, you know reason. I'm not gonna go into it because Heath just did, but that's mm-hmm. also my main hangup. And also like American fiction, it just didn't bother me as much. Um, it's weird to say it didn't bother me as much given the content of everything you said, but, um, because I was invested in the sister stuff, um, from the beginning, I think they do it. The movie does a good job of, you know, building that up from the start. Um, I liked 
both of the actresses at the beginning, um, Halle Bailey and Felicia Pearl Mapassi. Um, Heath, again, you and I talked for the Little Mermaid episode of this yeah. uh, podcast earlier in the year, and I said something like, I'm glad that Halle Bailey has this coming out because Little Mermaid was so bad. Um, and it's <laughs> good to see just like... Don't say that too she, loud. Alice will hear you. I know. <laughs> she gives an inc- uh, Halle Bailey gives an incredible vocal performance in this, and even better, she's on like in real places with real people dancing around and it looks amazing um as opposed Climbing to real trees i know exactly as opposed to dancing with the fish and the crabs and, and the mermaids and all that so like <laughs> that part of it inherently to me is amazing of this movie of color purple like yes. if you just look at the music and the choreography i think it's great um obviously if you kind of divorce the music from the rest of the movie i it is even better mm-hmm. um i also yeah, like you there's... said there's definitely stuff to admire here. I, I want to be very clear. Yeah. This is not a bad movie. When I give that criticism, I still said this was an okay film. I would even go high side of okay because there are still tremendous vocal performances. Fanta- uh, Fantasia Barino uh, and Daniela or Danielle Brooks are awesome here. Like tremendous performances, not even just in their vocals, but in their acting, uh, their line deliveries. Taraja P. Henson is great. I thought Corey Hawkins was awesome. Uh, there's beautiful visual aesthetics. Some of the cinematography choices here I thought were really well done. The use of color. Uh, these costumes are beautiful. I really hope this gets a Best Costume nomination. Uh, like some regal, elegant stuff, but also perfect for the time period. Uh, and I cannot get enough of the dance choreography throughout this movie as well. I thought that was terrific. And Again, another reason they should have stunts and choreography as a, as a category yeah. at the Oscars. If only someone wrote an article about something like that. Um, Check out Heath's column. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the choreography here is fantastic. So there's a lot to still appreciate uh, and be enthralled with within this movie. Uh, again, just tonally for me, I could not get on this movie's wavelength. Well, on top of all of that, um, it also, I think, thematically carries through the entire movie, like the idea of the color purple and what that represents. Um, And that's where I actually compare it a little bit to Les Mis um, in this this rendition, at least, because I was just thinking about it musically, where uh, there's the line at the end of Les Mis where they say to love another person is to see the face of God. And that's kind of what this is, where the idea of God and religion is kind of holding these two sisters back throughout the movie and it's being used to, you know, subjugate them to a lot of violence and all of this. Um, and the main character, Celie is kind of questioning how can God let this happen and all of this. And then Suge, uh, Taraji B. Henson's character lets her know, just like find God in people, find him in, in nature, find him in the color purple specifically. Um, and I love how that carries through all the way until the end. Um, Heath, I also want to echo what you said about Daniel Brooks and Fantasia Barino, like, immediately some of the awesome. greatest performances of the year there's yep you know blew me away the there's a dinner scene yeah, i'm gonna towards have to literally end. redo my rankings because of the performances in this yeah there's a dinner scene towards the end not the last dinner scene because the movie ends on a dinner scene but there's a dinner scene towards the end that the climactic daniel... dinner scene that the previous film also had yeah mm-hmm. yeah daniel brooks is just awesome in that <laughs> my scene. theater yeah. exploded like cackling with me her too in that scene. yeah it was it, that scene is amazing um, and the last thing that I'll say, just 
because I, it's, it just happens to be a negative because I said everything else. There's a curious uh, character development at the end with Coleman Domingo's character that mm-hmm. just does not work whatsoever for me. Frankly, I don't remember what it's like in the original movie, but uh, this one just doesn't work. And that's my biggest hang up. Um, I don't really want to spoil that part, but it just the, the doesn't plot, work given what he's been like throughout the rest of the movie. narratively is similar. The emotional development is very different in this one. And it's the emotion in this one that I had a problem with. If that makes any sense without spoiling anything. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, I only had a couple more things just to, just to, I'm going to, I'm going to dig on it a little bit more just to make <laughs> sure I get a, it's not just the tone. There are a few other things. Uh, speaking of Coleman Domingo, uh, his performance felt really weird to me. I think I'm in the minority in this one. A lot of people are liking Coleman here, but he didn't feel like a character. He felt more like a caricature and he was way over the top and eccentric in some, in a lot of instances that felt off to me. Um, uh, so that was weird. Um, some of the storyline issues are just completely dropped in this one. I don't know why they did this, but they'll literally introduce aspects to the story and then never resolve them. They'll just push them aside completely when the original film didn't do that. And I think that ties into my final point, which is this movie is about 10 to 15 minutes shorter than the original, but it also jams in 25 minutes of song. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to tell the original story in its entirety, but make it shorter and make a lot of it song inherently, you're going to have to cut stuff out and it makes for some weird pacing choices specifically in the first like half to maybe even two acts of this movie between songs. It feels really rushed to me. And Robert, I don't know if you felt that, but it felt like, Oh, we're like speed dating through some important plot developments just to get to the next song because we don't have the time to fully elaborate. And that felt odd to me, like how rushed things felt. Uh, I actually felt the rush in the second half because there are a lot of okay. time for uh, title cards giving what year it is. And it just like jumps yeah. through, like it skips a bunch of years at a time. It feels like maybe 10 or 15, every 10 or 15 minutes, a couple times, even less. That's where I felt the rush. i for some reason, I've felt the exact opposite of what you said, that it takes its time in the beginning and kind of zooms through it uh, in the second half. But Gotcha. Yeah. But still, there there is a crunch there you, you, that you, at some point you right. will probably Overall, feel yeah. where yeah. The, the pacing seems sped up for some reason to just get through plot points between songs because they don't give themselves enough time to fully elaborate on the emotion of a scene or whatever because we have to jam in 25 minutes of music throughout the course of this you know, two hour and 20 minute film, which is already 10 to 15 minutes shorter than a film that didn't have any music, you know, so of note. Let's put a cap on it there and move on to Eileen. It's directed by William Oldroyd, starring Thomas and McKenzie and Hathaway and Shay Wiggum. A woman's friendship with her new co-worker at a prison facility where she works takes a sinister turn. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> to put myself uh, on uh, with this one on the Sif Pop scale. I'm going to say like high side of okay could kind of veered into liked it, but it's an interesting one. Uh, I feel like I'm a broken record today and I'm still going to say this for more <laughs> movies later, but this is high side or straight down the middle. Okay. I have a lot of okay. Three star ratings this month. And this is, <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> and Luke, I don't remember. Did you get to this one? Sorry. Unfortunately, yet again, no, no, quite a few movies have not been released here yet for reasons. 
Well, the only reason that I saw this one is because I already was driving an hour and a half to see poor things and this uh, to like a bigger metropolitan area. So I figured while I'm out here, might as well catch Eileen because I like Anne Hathaway and Thomas and Mackenzie. Um, yeah, this one, <laughs> I don't, I, it's kind of boring to start out. Um, that's the best way I can put it. It's, I think it's like 98 minutes, something like that. We have this girl, Thomas and Mackenzie, who is sexually frustrated her dad is like physically not, abusive. Uh, yeah, yeah, physically abusive. I was trying to remember if he was physically abusive or just verbally. So he's both. He's abusive in both ways. He's a drunk. He's a former police captain. Um, he just stays at home and drinks all day, and she basically has to take care of him. Um, and then she just, like she's kind of repressed for those reasons. Her sister is off doing other things and doesn't come home and help out with the dad. And she just kind of gets develops this fascination with Anne Hathaway's character who comes to work as like a psychologist at the prison, the, like a, like a boy's prison that she works at. Um, Thomas and McKenzie is like the, like a secretary and Anne Hathaway is a psychologist. So all of a sudden she's like woken up to what the world can be because she, Anne Hathaway seems new and exciting in a town, New England town. That's like boring and nothing happens. Um, yeah, and through all that, it's just, like I said, kind of boring. You're trying to figure out what Anne Hathaway's deal is because she uh, befriends Thomas and Mackenzie and you don't really know why. And you're like, okay, is this a Carol situation? Is this Portrait Lady of on Fire? Like, what's going on here? And like I said, 98 minutes. So it's it doesn't drag you on for too long. But by the time that there's a reveal, like what this is all about, <laughs> it, it kind of smacks you in the face uh, dude that came out of nowhere it comes out of nowhere like like you say um and i find that part that comes out of nowhere to be very intriguing and it woke me up as i was falling asleep not literally but literally almost Same literally to me, actually and so i'm interested but by the end i'm just like i don't know if this twist if this reveal saved everything else that just kind of was lackadaisical going along. Um, both performances, both lead performances are solid, but Anne Hathaway is kind of a cipher and you don't really know what's what her deal is. And like I said, until the end, Thomas and McKenzie does a good job of using her still youthful appearance and demeanor. Um, even though she is in her mid twenties, she kind of still seems like she's younger, even though she's taking care of her dad. So that like adds to her naivete and her repressedness. But yeah, overall, like I said, weird movie. Yeah. Um, in my review, I said it's a psychological thriller. That's not very thrilling. Brilliant. <laughs> um, so it is, Hey, look, it's another weird tonal shift. The first two acts of this movie <laughs> you know? are like a character study on neglect and like depression and, a recourse of how you try to reconstruct your life to find happiness. And then the third act is this chaotic crime thriller that literally smacks you in the face, comes out of nowhere and doesn't feel connected to anything that you saw previously, even thematically. Um, I think both of them are interesting ish, uh, but they don't, they don't land. Um, I think the first two acts work best when it's McKinsey and Hathaway 
having conversations in a bar or whatever and just talking. I find the that dialogue uh, to be quite rich and entertaining. Um, but when it's just Mackenzie, you know, masturbating in the prison because she's sexually frustrated, gives real salt burn vibes. And it just doesn't, it just feels uh, like the movie doesn't know what it wants to do with itself. Like right um, in the open too. To the it was very act, odd. What? Masturbating right in the open too. It's very odd. Yeah. It's, it's so like, so weird. I was like, this is licking the tub and salt burn or <laughs> humping the grave salt burn vibes. Um, but then the third act of this is just unhinged, like comes out of nowhere. And it was also quite fascinating, but it just feels so detached from everything that had happened. It almost felt like it was a joke as it was going on. Like I couldn't even believe it was real and really happening. And then it just like ends like <laughs> it's just like, oh, and now the, the story's over and there's no resolution. It's just like climax cut to black. And I'm like, OK, cool. Um, but I did think Thomas and McKenzie did a great job here. I thought Anne Hathaway did a great job. I liked the like 60s production design and the costumes. Uh, I like some of the the like haunting original score in the background. There was, and again, I really liked their conversations when they were like at the bar together, kind of like feeling each other out from a character study perspective. I found that interesting. Um, but overall, just an okay movie because it can't figure out what it wants to be and what it wants to do. Yeah, I honestly hadn't really thought about this movie since I saw it a couple of weeks ago. And I'm just remembering it's just so wild. And it is, it's out like, there. It goes from being just so boring to being so wild to uh, making it worth discussing like this yeah um if it's on a streaming service you pay for already i'd say check it out if you've got if you've got 90 minutes to spare because it, it'll take you on an interesting little ride i definitely will yeah <laughs> especially if you like these two leads and thomas and mckenzie still yeah. an up-and-comer yeah oh yeah um let's move on to ferrari the new michael mann starring adam driver penelope cruz shailene woodley Set in the summer of 1957 with Enzo Ferrari's auto empire in crisis, the ex-racer turned entrepreneur pushes himself and his drivers to the edge as they launch into the Mille Miglia, a treacherous thousand-mile race across Italy. Luke, what did you think? On a C12 scale, I liked it. And I, I understand I'm in the minority. So, But yeah, I did enjoy my time with Ferrari. I low side of liked this one. Probably closer to okay. Hey, we're all the same again. Very low side of liked it. High side of okay. Go ahead, Luke. It sounds like you're highest uh, on it. Yeah, Luke's favorite honestly, movie of the year. 100%. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Now, I honestly wonder, like, you were talking about a movie, the American fiction and a promo, you know, promo for that movie. I honestly wonder whether the, you know, the middling kind of reviews and, you know, ratings I've seen from others whether they have to some you know something to do with one and only i think there was only one main trailer for it and it made it seem like the most uh, exciting racing movie that's ever yeah. been made yeah. and i didn't actually go into it like i didn't know i, I tried to stay away from trailers or even reading about you know like storylines plots anything like, you know so i went in expecting to kind of see this almost a biopic and that's what i've gotten like you know like it's a and i what i appreciated about it are you know the performances Adam Driver redeems himself after, you know, Adam Driver doing Italian accent, you know, flashes a house of Gucci is flashing, flashing, flashing. And it's not a good uh -huh. flash, even though he was not, you know, he wasn't a problem with the movie, but he also wasn't great. 
uh, he redeemed himself. I thought there were a lot of problems Enzo... in that movie. Yes, House of Gucci. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he, I, I thought he redeemed himself. Uh, and but Penelope Cruz almost stole the movie for me. And the, the other reason I really like this movie is I appreciated this is kind of biopic, kind of racing movie. And for what I assume, many people will be like, well, yeah, you kind of pick a lane. It's in, you know, he wants to be both. I kind of like that because, again, it's it focuses on this one summer of 57 where everything is crashing down. You know, Ferrari is almost going bankrupt and his personal life, Enzo's personal life, it seems to be also hitting this curb. No pun intended, maybe. <laughs> and I really liked that first it's based on a book. Michael Mann has obviously been obsessed with it for, I think he wanted to make it since 1994. So, oh, wow. and you can tell he is interested in the story. And uh, the movie is beautifully shot. The sound design, it is worth paying the price of, you know, of the cinema admission because just to see it on the biggest screen you can. Even though I didn't love it, I would strongly recommend just you watching it on the biggest screen you can because it will definitely pay off those. When you get to those racing scenes, you can tell it's been done by somebody who's, you know, who's been doing this for a while, as Michael Mann definitely has. And yeah, those are my like general thoughts of that. Um, you said it tries to be a biopic. And what else did you say? And the racing, racing movie. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... I definitely vibe more with the racing parts. Um, See, I definitely vibe with a biopic, but I understand why would you vibe with a racing movie. I, I don't know if I had the trailer problem like I was saying about American mm-hmm. fiction. Maybe I had the Michael Mann problem where I was expecting, you know, the excitement of the racing stuff and he delivers there. And mm-hmm. the, you know, the biopic marriage, you know, mistress stuff. It, it's mm-hmm. I don't think it's terrible. Like I said, I'm still low side of like it-ish. Uh, I just found it a lot less interesting than whenever the cars were going vroom um, because I thought <laughs> when the cars were going vroom, it was a lot of fun, uh, yes. except for two specific instances where it was <laughs> specifically not fun. Um, where it was horrible. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Horrifying. Um, he says two objects cannot occupy the same space, and that's kind of how I feel where you know it's either racing okay. or either biopic, and it, they can't really coexist together in this movie. Um, separate. And it's like, almost like, like said, a lot of movies this month had tonal issues. I know, and we'll get to this later. Obviously, this felt like Maestro in a lot of ways to me, where it kind of hmm. wants to be less about what, like Enzo Ferrari is the Ferrari guy, is the car guy, but it almost yeah. wants to be less about that and more about his relationships with his wife, his mistress, and his kids, um, mm-hmm. alive or dead, and. Maestro is less about the music than it is about Leonard Bernstein's personal life. And again, we'll get to that later. Um, I appreciated it more here in Ferrari because it felt more focused, like you said, on that specific summer and had a specific thing I wanted to say about that. Um, I don't know what it was, though. I I just wasn't drawn into the relationship dynamics. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of what really holds me back on the movie as a whole. Copy, paste, control C, control V. (laughs) Um, I it it was it was fun. I was entertained. I liked the performances. I actually really thought Penelope Cruz was great here, like yes. really giving it her all. I actually found her character to be the most entertaining and yes. interesting of everyone, even more than Enzo Ferrari himself. And like mm-hmm. not even by a little bit, by a significant amount. 
Um, but the movie itself is just, it's overall, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, Michael Mann has a history. One of his favorite themes to examine and explore in his films is men who compulsively set their eyes on a certain target, usually some kind of career profession, and it's to the detriment of their personal lives. He's explored this in a lot of his movies, mm -hmm. uh, from Thief to Heat, and now here in Ferrari and so many others. Um, what is Enzo willing to sacrifice about his personal life and his personal happiness for the greater success of his career? And I think that is an interesting conversation that the film is having. Mm -hmm. I found that compelling. What's weird, though, is that the way Ferrari himself is written in this is very detached from that. Um, at no point do we get to see his introspection about how he feels about his personal life. You know, in some of those other movies that I just mentioned, you know, like Robert De Niro in Heat, we see him trying to have a romantic connection. Uh, even more specifically, Al Pacino in Heat, we see him trying to fix his marriage and have a connection with his daughter, but they're so consumed with their career in crime and their career as a cop that they can't, they can't reconcile the difference here in this one. It's as if uh, Ferrari's detached from that. He'll have conversations with the, uh, his wife and with his mistress where he'll literally say the words, well, how do you want me to resolve this? Or just what do you want me to do? And yeah. it's as if he's not interested in engaging in the conversation, which is maybe the point that Michael Mann is trying to make, but it also makes it so that I really don't know what Enzo is thinking. Uh, one of the, the main conflicts throughout this movie is, is his name, the Ferrari name. And should someone have that name? And at no point, throughout the entire movie, having seen the whole movie, do I get the understanding of what Ferrari himself feels? I have no idea if he wanted his son to have his name. I know what his mistress wanted. I know what his wife wanted. I know what everyone in the town wanted. I don't know what he wanted. Uh, and there's this weird, weird disconnect where the main character himself, I, I don't know what his own drives and motivations are in his personal life, which feels disjointed when the, mo the majority of the movie is about his personal life and not the racing stuff. But I will say the racing stuff, Robert, like you said, was absolutely riveting. Cars go vroom and they go vroom really well. <laughs> it's, it's shot very well. It's edited terrifically. You can feel the adrenaline. Uh, you can feel the speed. Um, it's very exciting. Uh, there is one big epic scene and you will know which scene I'm talking about when you see this movie that will make you holy crap like i can't believe they Brutal. put that like even when i knew it was yeah. coming you could see the obstruction in the road and you know what's mm -hmm. going to happen i didn't think it was going to be that visceral and brutal um mm -hmm. you know like there's more attention in that scene than in the majority of the scenes about his personal life which is the majority of the film um and i think that's kind of what you were getting at robert is there's just again this tonal disparity it's it doesn't seem like there's as much focus where there needs to be focus um to really bring the themes and the story together, at least for me mm -hmm. to say as a caveat, that's all how I felt, but yeah. uh, I thought Penelope Cruz was great. I thought the racing was fun. Patrick Dempsey here for some reason, he was enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> and Adam driver races. as Ferrari was enjoyable. Uh, so I still had fun. I still would probably recommend the movie, 
but it's certainly not one of Michael Mann's best movies. And it's not something that I would run away with as saying, oh, this is one of the best movies of the year by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Luke, you were making a lot of faces. I want yeah. to hear you. are making faces. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very expressive person. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now, I would, I, I agree with most of what he said. He just, you know, Penelope Cruz is amazing. Like, I really hope she's gonna get nominated. I don't think that's gonna happen, but I would hope she would get because, yeah, like her scene at the cemetery at the very beginning. That's not. This is not a spoiler, by the way. Uh, it's you know the very beginning where Adam Driver has his three, four minute scene where he talks to himself and all of that. And then she gets 30 to 40 seconds, just this close up on her face. Mm-hmm. And then just in those 30 to 40 seconds with no words, she changes about four emotions. You can see the sadness, you can see the anger, you can see the uh, all the other emotions. I currently don't come to my non-English speaking brain. And I was sure. uh, riveted because he, as you said, as you said, Heath, I totally agree. She is the more interesting character because you need to understand yep. Enzo, you know, his wife, it wasn't, oh, she is Enzo's Ferrari's wife. No, this is her own person. And, uh, you know, Enzo as a person wouldn't have had a wife he can, for a better, for lack of a better word, mop the floor with. No, she literally almost shoots him. That's her, that's her introduction scene. Yeah. You know, he, she, and it's been made clear throughout the movie, she is as big of a reason why Ferrari became Ferrari. That we know and, and some love, you know, till today, because she is an equal partner. You know, she or she was an equal partner. And this is where I would push back. I don't necessarily agree that we don't understand or, you know, the movie doesn't tell you what Enzo is about. Yes, he might seem detached, but I think that's it's not a detached. He is in this summer. And this is why I like the aspect of this movie focusing on this one period of time. This summer, you can see everything around him crumbling down and he is in the very middle of every single thing. Whether it's Ferrari, it's eventually his company, his name, or his marriage, or this, you know, the side has a son, the mistress thing. If if your life is crumbling down at this one moment and every aspect of your life is crumbling, you know, there must be a level of attachment. Otherwise, you will get mad. And to have that kind of burden on your shoulders, as Adam Driver's character had, as, en- as Enzo himself probably would have had, because this is, again, all based on real-life events. You know, there's a, based on a movie and, a mem- you know, memorial. Like, he can actually uh, uh, talk, uh, listen to the Mike- Michael Mann talk to, in DGA about this movie. It's pretty mm-hmm. great talk, by the way. And it's, to me, it, he's not as much as detached as he understands there are so so many nuances where he cannot just straight out say, yes, I know he's my son and I know he should have my name, but he does, he cannot tell it, you know, he cannot say it outright because of the respect he's got for Penelope Cruz's, you know, character for his wife, the actual, you know, the legacy statement of what that means for Ferrari as a brand. And I think that that was, that will be my final point why I enjoyed this movie. I thought it's it's not even as a biopic. I always I almost thought of it as a this is a movie about a brand bigger than life. Ferrari, you know, this is one of those this was never a name to me. When I was born, it was always a car. Only yeah. after I've learned this is named by the founder. So this is to me humanizing the man and woman, you know, Penelope Cruz's character behind the name and putting them down to our level of almost these almost godlike creatures who created this you know behemoth of a 
company and that still runs today that you know this movie takes you know takes a not aim but like you know focuses on their life and and, and makes us understand yes they used to be you know they helped create this big company but they were you know just people and they were not uh, they were not perfect people they were people with with a lot of nuances but they were people and this is their story and i just appreciated that aspect of that uh i often say that i'll need to go back and rewatch movies to fully grasp what's going on um and i really like everything you just said so oh, like while i didn't get it mm-hmm. like that didn't come through to me while i was watching the movie um i can definitely see it in there looking back so if and when someday i rewatch ferrari i'll keep all that in mind and see if i eventually agree mm-hmm. um but i think with that let's move on to godzilla minus one directed by takashi yamazaki starring Rainusuke kamiki minami hamabe uh, Munetaka Loki and Hidetaka Yoshioka, as well as many others. Those were just the few characters that stood out to me. It's the main character, the guys on the boat, and uh, the main, you know, woman. Um, post-war Japan is at its lowest point when a new crisis emerges in the form of a giant monster baptized in the horrific power of the atomic bomb. Heath, thoughts on Godzilla minus one? I absolutely love this movie. And I think I'm speaking for a lot of people when I say this is one of the surprise big hits of the year. Uh, almost same. I'm a low side of like it, like but like just a, like tiny, like more to love it. More, sorry, a low side of love it. Mm. There's like few, one or two things that bothered me, but it's an amazing movie. I wasn't planning to see this movie. I just thought, oh, here's a new Godzilla movie. Whatever, I'll I'll skip it. I'm not a Godzilla fan. I read Heath's review for the site. I was on Letterboxd. I just, you know, paid attention to other film critics. Everyone was saying it's incredible. I was like, okay, fine. You twisted my arm. I'll go see the new Godzilla movie, even though the only Godzilla movies I've ever seen are this current monster verse or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And I'm the same way. Absolutely loved it. Like I have a couple small nitpicks, mm-hmm. but besides those small nitpicks, which are just basically story conveniences, like one of the best movies of the year, it blew me away, surprised me. I did not yeah, expect this is in my top little. 10 easily. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Same. I've made it clear on podcasts before that I'm kind of tired of war movies in general, uh, just because I feel like a lot of them boil down to saying similar messages. And while I normally agree with those messages about being anti-war and that it's horrific, yada, yada, yada. Um, like I've seen it. I don't need to see more destruction and more death, but this movie and this is the biggest reason why I love it, deals with war in a way that I haven't seen uh, in a long time, if ever. Um, and that's partially because it's from the Japanese perspective about kamikaze. Uh, the main character is a former kamikaze pilot um, who basically abandoned his quote-unquote duties um, and was still living because of that abandonment. Um, and then it obviously gets into the post-war attitude of Japan in the 40s and 50s. Um, I don't remember if it goes into the 50s, but it's at least in the 40s, obviously. Um, So the way that it deals with all that and uh, how these people process what has happened in the war and how how their attitudes about what they did and what still has to happen uh, regarding the war changes throughout the movie. 
it's all incredibly fascinating to me. Um, so I love it thematically and culturally. Like, this is just another reason why we got to see more movies from other countries, particularly us Americans, particularly me in general. Um, I don't want to speak for other people too much, but like, I just love seeing the, the other perspective that I don't get very often, uh, specifically on war and this war, World War II in particular. And that's not even yeah. to mention Godzilla, which I'm, we'll get into. I was just gonna say, like, I'm gonna bring up the similar points to you, which is weird, where since we were talking about Godzilla movie, right? But the main point of you know having to, in a way, I'm gonna compare it to Rambo for, or First Blood, mm-hmm. because it's the same kind of themes where you know for people who actually gone and fought in a war. The war has not ended when the war actually ended. They br- right. they brought it back with themselves, you know. And to see that perspective from the as you as you mentioned from this unique, failed, deserted kamikaze pilot, and not only to bring it back that he it feels guilty for abandoning that, but his war is therefore not over, and he still has that idea that my war is not finished. I still need to fight, and I still feel like I need to give. If you know, if it comes to it, my life because I failed on this one occasion, I should have done it, and I failed. I backed out, and I need to do it now. It was very fascinating to ground. It's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it to grind uh, grounded, you know, Godzilla movie, and this is I think what we are always talking about, you know, when it comes to the American Godzilla movies. We always say the we don't care about human characters. Give us Godzilla fighting, you know, punching stuff, breaking stuff, fighting other big monsters. But this this one, the Godzilla is big. The Godzilla punches stuff. The Godzilla breaks stuff. But it also wreaks havoc. It acts, and it's not merciful. I really like how the Godzilla feels like this godlike creature that is just there to judge you and to destroy you. It's not going to be, oh, this Godzilla might eventually be on our side. Hey, let's try to convince her. No, this Godzilla is the chaotic evil. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is, and it's it, and that's why the almost horror element of this movie worked for me because every time it shows up, you feel, you know, something's gonna go down and it's not gonna be nice, and the the movie pulls you in that and uh, you know on with that story about our survivor and how he tries to basically rile up the troops to fight it. It it was it was great. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Uh, say too much just because I did write the review for this one on the website so I've already said a lot of what I wanted to say I'll I'll just repeat everything you guys said about the themes is great it's great that we actually have a human story at the core of this and makes the empathy and the relatability so much stronger and it just makes the Godzilla stuff when it does come that much more epic uh, mm-hmm. that atomic breath might be the coolest atomic breath I've ever seen in any Godzilla film ever like yes literally epic in scale and destruction uh i actually felt concern for our characters i felt concern for their personal lives i loved their connections uh i love what it even has to say about government and how government can abandon people and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's up to the people to Mm -hmm. come together and fight for themselves It, it this movie is doing so much and it is so much more than big dinosaur lizard come smash buildings and um, I, I couldn't recommend enough that everyone needs to see this movie. The only thing that holds me back from literally making this a five-star perfect movie is the very final scene of the movie. Yes. 
makes a decision about a character uh, that feels very cheap and it feels like it's there just for an emotional pull. I think that was unnecessary. And furthermore, I would say it even undercuts kind of the, the central emotional motivation of our main character and why he chose to do what he did. Um, so I felt that was not necessary. Um, but other than that, that's a minor nitpick. This movie is absolutely tremendous and everyone needs to see this. Which is kind of weird because I'm on exactly the same page. If it wasn't for the last minute of the movie, I probably would have been five stars. Yep. The last minute, I was like, come on. Like, and it, it's weird because it actually fits thematically. It actually, it, the movie actually makes it, you know, fit thematically, even though it doesn't work narrative-wise. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. So let's just yep. go with that. Uh, See, there are two I, things that I'm thinking about from the movie. I, I want to have a brief spoiler comment okay. at the end of okay. this. like Because okay. there are two things I think this could be. Um, hmm, okay. So I, I'm curious what you guys are talking about. Because both of the I'm two talking things... The literal, are... the literal last okay. scene where someone yes. is alive. Yes, yes, me too. Okay. Me too. That, well, that I, I disagree with that person being alive. <laughs> same but okay, that that uh, does make it specific for me. And I was going to say both the things that I was thinking of, neither of them bothered me, um, mm-hmm. because like, like Luke was saying, it thematically works, and also mm-hmm. um, it, it emotionally got me. You know, that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, amidst the themes that I was thinking about about war, like it got me so invested in these characters um, mm-hmm. that I was rooting for it so hard, um, and what happened happened. You know got me emotionally and sure in that case i just follow my heart instead of my head about like oh does this make sense or does this not or this and that see the thing is i actually kind of emotionally got me too mm-hmm. even though my brain was like this isn't now and so there's i also have this split between it worked thematically and i'm kind of glad but also my brain after the movies was over was like am i glad I don't think I'm. I don't think I am. Like I'm. I'm happy for those people, but no. And like you know, there's this tiny disconnect there. I think what you were referencing to the previous scene, and I think regarding our main character, that did not bother me. Yeah. So yeah, that that, that was that telegraphed. Scene, yeah, yeah. That exactly. It was telegraphed. I had no that problem didn't, with that. Exactly because that actually fits on the team. Like you yeah. know, he, you know, he like. I don't know if that's you know what we can probably spoil the movie a bit at the end because like I yeah. I would like to discuss it a okay. bit further. Um, my last quick thoughts are that uh, on top of all this human stuff that I've been talking about, all these great war oh. themes that I've been talking about, just the filmmaking of Godzilla. Like if you go to the movies just for excitement and just mm-hmm. for spectacle, like this still delivers all of that. You know, like this yeah. is the Godzilla. Uh, you know the the visual effects of the Godzilla look amazing. The destruction mm-hmm. looks amazing. Um, just, there's, I have no nitpicks visually. Um, it It's tense. Like the, there's the reporters on the roof in that one scene. Like I was, I never met oh, them yeah. before, but I was worried about them. Um, all, all of that is just incredible. Just amazingly done. Um, but my one nitpick is just, there are three specific moments of Deus Ex Machina's that I don't normally like use that as a as a critique in in my movies, but there are three specific moments in that one scene that I was talking about uh, with the mm. reporters on the roof. Someone comes out of nowhere 
and it just like helps out a character who's yep. in trouble out of absolutely nowhere. There's no way this person should have been where they were. And that broke the immersion for me. And there are two. I, specific... I saw this with a friend and he literally threw his hands up in the middle of the yeah. theater. He's like, no way. <laughs> just completely out of nowhere. And then there are two scenes on the water where just like, all right, someone's here to save the day when these people like Godzilla had these people dead to rights. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of stuff breaks the immersion for me. Once it's fine. It's like, okay, whatever. But it kept happening two more times. And that's where it's like, all right, that's enough that it really bugged me. Uh, that I did not get down half a star, but otherwise, really, really love this movie as a whole. Exactly um, the VFX. I would say the VFX, as you mentioned, they are great. I love the look of Godzilla, even though in some scenes it cute. does look a bit rubbery. But it, exactly, it's cute. It doesn't. <laughs> it never pulled me out. It never pulls me out of the movie, even though, like you can tell, this is a you know this is paying homage to the original Godzilla. The actual scream is paying homage to the original Godzilla, which I love mm-hmm. the decision. What I and also think, you know, go see that movie and think of this movie who looks beautiful, costed about fifteen million dollars to make, and Ant Man and you know Quantum was Quantum Mania, whatever two hundred plus million. So there's no more ex- like this year, no more excuses like MCU, Disney, no more excuses. I'm sick and tired yeah. of this. Quantum Mania awful look like the worst looking movie of the year oh besides expendables four um godzilla minus one also has an incredible score which i wanted to also mention oh yeah which uses the original theme also but uh Mm -hmm. does its own stuff too it's amazing let's move on to the iron claw directed by sean durkin starring zach efron jeremy allen white harris dickinson holt mccallany stanley simons maura tierney lily james the true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. I love this. Like, full-throated, absolutely love it. I absolutely love this as well. This is another that made my top 10 this year. Mm-hmm. And this is the last one that hasn't been released here, but I do oh, have a okay. question for you. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the last one. But I'll have a question. I've seen the trailer quite a few times now in front of other movies because it's going to be released in January, I believe, like, 15 or something okay but i've only seen one trailer that seems to be one of those old-fashioned let's recap the entire movie in two minutes so Mm -hmm. even though i had no idea about this family because i don't follow wrestling so sorry i don't uh i had no idea this family existed but it seemed to me this movie told me exact everything that's gonna happen there's a wedding that somebody probably one of the brothers will die and and then it's gonna be, you know, broken up about it. So is that trailer I've seen representative of the actual movie? That's my question. I would say that the trailer is indicative of some of the things that happen in this movie. So it doesn't uh, tell you the cool story. The no, trailer does not. Like the okay. trailer does not remotely illustrate the scope of what happens in this movie. Because, you know, if it wasn't, you know, just again, I'll just say one more point and I'll shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it was just pure, uh, purely based on the trailer and not the response I've seen from guys like yourself and I, you know, uh, yeah. I trust I follow, I wouldn't have gone see the, see that movie because the trailer plays exactly like, no, well, now I have seen the entire movie. I don't need to see the movie, you know, movie. So that's my only point. Sorry. No, I I don't know if I've seen that trailer because I... I don't always watch trailers at home and just kind of keep my head down at the theater and look at my phone while they're playing. Mm. Um, 
So I don't know if I've seen that one, but it, mm-hmm. like he said, there's more <laughs> than happens in this movie. I would hope uh, so. Significantly yeah. more. Okay, good. So I'll speak a little yeah, bit on this one first before Robert, you go off. Cause I actually am a wrestling fan. Um, mm-hmm. I knew this story um, before going to see this movie. Uh, if you are a wrestling fan uh, uh, in, in not just modern wrestling, but you've dabbled back into past years, past decades, uh, it is nearly impossible not to know this story because of how tragic it was. It, it, it won't feel real to the extent that the movie even changes some of the events to make it less tragic than what actually happened in real life. Because Uh if they literally did everything that happened in real life, you would just not believe it after a certain point. You'd be like, there's no way all this shit's real. Well, it was, um, with that said, I think this movie is fascinating. Uh, it is much more actually a movie about brotherhood and the fraternal bond of brotherhood and brothers and how they, uh, learn to grow and love one another, even through the most trying and terrible of times, uh, than it is about wrestling. Uh, wrestling is just the foundation that that story is told upon. And it is riveting. The performances here are excellent. This is literally the career best performance of Zach Efron. And I don't think it's close. I think this is something a lot of people saw in him. Um, yeah. and here it's fully realized supporting he finally performances had the from like, yeah. Yeah, supporting performances from like Jeremy Allen White, absolutely terrific. Terrific. Harris Dickinson, awesome here. Um, uh, Holt McElhaney, uh, viciously vile human being in this film. Terrific job. Um, more than that, just the theme work that it's going through is fantastic. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, and Robert will be able to speak to this in a, in a bit, the way that they introduce exposition but not burden you with it. And they front load it into the movie so that as the movie progresses, you can understand everything that's happening. Nothing is overly confusing. Uh, Even the way that they shoot it from a cinematography standpoint uh, and the way it's edited within the ring, like it has a full realization and understanding of the physicality they explain. And you can see like, Oh yeah. Wrestling may be scripted, but the moves are still real. You can see when people are actually getting hurt because they messed up a move or they did something that was that went the wrong way. And you can sense that pain Uh, or even just the athleticism of some of these flips or somersaults they're doing off the top rope turnbuckle. Like so much, this movie gets right. uh, What it understands about the sport. And that's even just the wrestling aspect, but it understands about family, family dynamics, the idea of abuse, uh, religious abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, all of this m- makes a, a Greek tragedy on a scale that, again, you wouldn't even believe this is real. But all of this stuff happened to this family, even more than you see in the movie. It is incredibly dark and tragic. It did make me cry by the end of it, Robert. I don't know if it made you cry, but I've seen a lot of people that this really affected on an emotional scale. And it's just a harrowing, harrowing story and well-constructed film. Yeah, before I give a little bit more background, I want to reply to a couple of things you said uh, just to agree with you. One, that it's not about wrestling um, and that it's front-loaded. So front-loaded in terms of exposition uh, because that was my main thing. I know nothing about wrestling apart from I saw the Aronofsky movie, The Wrestler, um, (laughs) which is not this. no it's not 
and I don't knew nothing about the family. So like, this is like two ten something like that. Um, but in the first half an hour, 45 minutes, I knew everything I needed to know about wrestling and about each one of these characters. There are four main brothers in this movie, plus the two parents, plus Lily James, uh, who turns out to be the love interest for Zac Efron. And I knew everything I needed to know about each one of them and about wrestling. And they're all and, unique and well-defined. No, and exactly. It's never confusing. And the rest of the way through, it just like let me settle in and take in the story because I knew what the, each person's characteristics were, what they might do in a certain situation, what they thought of different things, what their attitudes towards stuff was. Um, and in doing so, that lets the rest of the movie breathe, breathe and operate on a level that just allows you to follow it and get taken in by the story and by the emotions, which like you said, Heath are very dark. Um, I don't want to rub it in for you, Heath, but I was in New York uh, with Shane and Foster and Rowan and we were seeing a couple movies early. And uh, of course you were the trailer for this came up a couple times that day. And Shane, who was also a big wrestling fan, kept leaning over and said, um, like, this is going to be such a dark movie. It's going to be such a sad, emotional movie. So that was all I knew going into it. Um, and after after the movie ended, I immediately messaged him. And I said, you are not kidding about the Iron Claw. Like, that knocked me over. It, I, it takes a lot for me to cry a movie. So I didn't, like, actually cry, but I came close. Um, like, that's how deep and emotional it was. Um but like you, you were saying, it's very dark and very emotional, and, and like displays a lot of hurt. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the at the end of the day, at the end of the movie, it's uplifting. It's um, yes, positive, and that's kind of what I like about it the most is that it takes optimism um, out of all of this darkness. Like this could have just been like a like a dreary, sad show for the entire time that just knocks you over the head and say, says like, "Hey, didn't these this people these people's life suck?" Um, look at all the bad stuff that happened to them for a decade. But while it does do that, it actually has something to say about that. Like you said, about brotherhood, about family, about what what's important to us in life. Um, Finding light in the darkness is a, yeah. is a big theme. Yeah. And because you, like you said, because you know about everyone from the beginning, that makes all the relationships, all the themes, all the ideas, all the feelings hit even harder towards the end. Um before I'm done, I just want to highlight one more scene uh, or one specific scene between Maura Tierney and Lily James, who as the two leading ladies of the movie probably get the least to do because it's basically about brothers and how a father specifically affects his sons. Um, But there's one particular scene with them uh, in a bedroom and it's perhaps the most moving scene of the movie for me. There's not much dialogue. It's just facial expressions from the two. I think it's like uh, medium close-ups of them. It's just incredibly well done. And it it's one of the, like the more simply done scenes that have the biggest effects. And I, I, I like that scene as well. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is uh, this film has a very unique look at cascading trauma. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is trauma that feeds into other traumatic moments in life, um, more so than almost any other film I've maybe ever seen, and how one awful event can lead to another, and how to escape such a cycle. Um, so if that has any interest to you, this is the movie to see. 
Uh, Luke, are you interested now? Oh, 100. again, like I was interested <laughs> even before this conversation. You guys just, you know, that's a cherry on the top because I, yeah. I've seen the, re- you know, reviews or or rating. I don't read reviews before a movie, before watching movies. I've seen the ratings of others for this movie, and I've been hearing about kind of the same as Godzilla. Wasn't interesting in Godzilla whatsoever. Didn't even know it was coming out. And then suddenly everybody was talking about Godzilla of people I know and trust when it comes to movies. So I was like, all right, I'm seeing Godzilla too. So this movie is the same. Was you know, I'm not as a wrestling fan. I don't think you would get me to the theater. But now hearing what I'm hearing and see you know and watching all of these ratings, no, I'll be there. Cool. Let's move on then to Leave the World Behind, directed by Sam Esmail, starring Ethan Hawke, Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, and Mahala. A family's getaway to a luxurious rental home takes an ominous turn when a cyber attack knocks out their devices and two strangers appear at their door. Um, I said I don't want to be mean and too uh, too declarative with my Aquaman statement, but I, I think I hated <laughs> uh, Leave the World Behind. I hated this one as well, and uh, Robert, damn you for making me watch this. I literally was going to skip this one, and you put it on the roster for this episode, so I watched it, and I blame you entirely for my experience. <laughs> I mean, come on, Ethan Hawke, Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali—like I was in it for that and the premise alone. But go ahead. Please. I know, I know. I'm still blaming you. <laughs> so I'm going to be in the minority here and say yeah. I thought it's high side of it's just okay, low side of liked it. But I think we all have the same issue with the ending. So this is an impossible movie to discuss without actually spoiling it. Because the there's a one specific issue with this. And I, I have a feeling we all have the same issue. The Friends theme song? I, I totally yes. agree. Yes, that's it. I That Friends theme song, we don't have to be specific about its context. Mm-hmm. But it's indicative of my entire problem with the movie. Is that it's entirely too on the nose and unsubtle mm-hmm. about everything. And self-important right from the jump self-important thematically self-important mm-hmm. uh, important from a formal filmmaking level like we get it you can put move the camera through a window good for you like it's he does that like three different times and it drives me crazy i, I like movies that are interesting visually but when they're showing off that they're is- interesting visually then it's just off-putting to me mm-hmm. and that's what this movie is um it was right up my alley to confirm all of my biases <laughs> about the world just like mm-hmm. about the, the state of, of America and the way that we treat, you know, devices and, and all that kind of stuff. But man, it, it felt like if Adam McKay made a, made a M night Shyamalan movie. So like in, in concept, <laughs> it it's the a, worst tendencies of both directors, right? In concept, it's a Shyamalan, the happening type. And in mm-hmm. McKay, it's just like, look, I'm smarter than everyone. I, I know better than you. You guys all suck. And I'm going to show you why. And it's it's like all the worst qualities of Don't Look Up and Vice put into all the worst qualities of, you know, the happening and Lady in the Water and all that. And it's just just drove me insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to harp on it too much, but like everything about it was bad. I started wondering if Ethan Hawke was a bad actor. I started wondering if Julia Roberts and Marshall Ali were bad actors. I think they were just given bad dialogue um, and mm-hmm. terrible kid writing. I thought I the they- main reason I liked it or kind of had a better time with it i yeah. like the themes and i like the general vibe of i you know there's many conspiracy theories nowadays and i genuinely subscribe to people are kind of right about you know certain people running the world but even at the end of the day it doesn't matter at the end of the day even those people running the world whatever you want to think about it 
they would still get a heads up if something major were to go, you know, go go down. They wouldn't brought out a sense of society, you know. And I think that's the main theme of the movie. No, uh, the rich are not against us. They, you know, if something were to happen, they would just get a one day heads up. Hey, this is happening. You might want to locate mm-hmm. to your uh, Hawaii, uh, bunker in Hawaii. Your bunker. Zuckerberg is Zuckerberg is currently building. <laughs> you know, uh, right. so. I thought again those themes and those kind of messages. I didn't. I didn't have problems with the performances. I had a problem with the ending, and I'll leave it at that. See, I I like the themes and the messages. It's just mm-hmm. like I agree with them. It's mm-hmm. just when they're like I agree with "Don't Look Up." It's just when they're mm-hmm. presented in such a know-it-all, you know, showy I, way that rubs me the wrong. Okay, way. can I make this point? Can I? Yeah. I'll make this point real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think because I've actually listened to the Don't Look Up conversation and he brought it up and he brought up Network. And I thought it's not a fair comparison because the because the Network has been made in the 70s where people were different. Whatever you want to think about current society and social media and all that, it's changed. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you cannot be subtle. Many, many movies cannot be subtle. And this is reflective of the society we currently live in, for better or worse. For better or worse. And this movie, the same as Don't Look Up, it needs to be over top because it reflects, unfortunately, maybe I'm sounding too pessimistic. I think it reflects the society we currently live in perfectly. Is it on a nose? Yes. But it needs to be. Because, you know, if you dumb it down or if you if you be a slightly less on a nose, some people wouldn't get it. And that's the unfortunate truth. I don't think it, and I don't think it's, I, I know this sounds smug or whatever you want to call me. <laughs> I'll take it. Doesn't matter. I like you know spend some time on social media, and y- it's hard not to feel like that. My... I won't even inherently disagree with what you said. My mm-hmm. problem isn't so much that this movie is on the nose. My problem is that this movie is shallow, shallow, shallow yes. in terms of yeah. its depth. Like ankle deep at the kitty end of the of the pool depth. Like yeah. right, <laughs> the, making the commentary that we are divided and things are untrusting these days that there's a lot of hate leading to violence that mm-hmm. we're all too reliant on technology that's fine those are awesome themes to make and robert i'm like you you're cool you're confirming my already predisposed biases i got yeah, it yeah but you have to go more than that i don't mind them being on the nose with those themes i mind mm-hmm. them just saying hey did you know that these are problems and then doing nothing with it that's what mm-hmm. bothered me and what made me feel like this movie had its head up his own ass. Uh, mm-hmm. I I couldn't believe this movie. It 141 minutes never felt so long in my life. Uh, I thought no. this <laughs> this took like five hours to finish. Uh, it literally made me think that Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, Kevin Bacon, Mahershala Ali like aren't good. It, it it is the dialogue is just awful. Julia Roberts in particular, her character is just insufferable. One of the most mm-hmm abhorrent people i've ever heard in my entire life and i understand that she has misanthropy and she's trying to wrestle with that but that still doesn't that that's just a character trait that's not a character development and the character and that's the only way she's written throughout the whole movie and just it just it's i I said this in my review and i feel like this distills my my frustration with it as well this movie has a 13-year-old that knows which seasons of The West Wing, a show from the 90s, were the Aaron Sorkin seasons, but she doesn't know what a damn rerun is. Like, come on, stop it. Just stop. I, 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 to be fair, but it's actually accurate. Of, 
to be fair, that's actually accurate. Not to, not to, no. you know, not to pick There's a fight, but it's no an way accurate. Someone has that knowledge of television Wait, and has never heard old. of the concept of a rerun. I don't no, because want... television, because the concept of television for thirteen-year-olds is iPad. Concept for television for thirteen-year-olds is a laptop. They don't watch reruns. If you know, I'm not saying that they watch them. I'm saying that they would have knowledge of what the concept of a rerun is. There's I, no way that they don't. And I, I just. I disagree because I've, I like my my sister has younger kids and I see that like the concept that's that's not that's so familiar to us it's a foreign concept to them already and they are eight <laughs> so like you know I actually believe that like because they have so much dispo- uh, information to their disposal you know I actually didn't, I had no problem with that I understand your point but with that specific line I actually thought that would be possible because nowadays kids do not you know if they grow up in front of television. They don't grow up watching CBS or whatever American television you guys have. They will grow mm-hmm. up watching Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, all that stuff, Hulu. You know, they don't know how, they don't understand rerun because they never they haven't been grown up in nineties or you know early early two thousands. But someone with television my, my, knowledge might like if they're doing that sort of research and knowing what yeah Aaron that, that's what I'm saying. Are, Just because I didn't experience the Civil War doesn't mean I know, right. don't know what the Civil War is. <laughs> I think there's a little inherent flaw in that in that logic. Like that's that's how we learn is we study. Mm-hmm. If this kid knows who Aaron Sorkin is and went back and learned about the Aaron Sorkin seasons of a show that was from the '90s, mm-hmm. I just don't buy. And and her favorite show is Friends, a show that was the mm-hmm. the '90s yeah. of '90s television show. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't buy that she doesn't at least know what the concept of a rerun is, but. That's a separate conversation. No, yeah, yeah. Long story short, I, I think this movie just, it, it, it thinks it's so self-important. And mm. it, while I don't disagree with its themes and what it's trying to say about the world today, I do vehemently disagree with how the points are illustrated and how deep they go into these themes. And also just the narrative itself is plausibly completely ridiculous on several points. Even as, it, just when it comes down to, oh, 30 to 40 deer are going to stare at me and just be okay with like, so are we in the twilight zone now? It's just, it, are we, are we trying to say that this is like a story based in reality? Anyway, I've got nothing else on this. I hated this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just want to respond to a point Luke was making a minute ago where you were saying it has to be direct and it has to be like, there's no room for subtlety. Um, Like people like us, people like me and Heath and you, Luke, I'm not trying to exclude you, but like, we're smart movie watchers. We can pick up on subtlety. Like to me, that just kind of feels like you're saying you have to make movies for the dumbest people who can't pick up on filmmaking devices or mm. storytelling devices that that communicate messages instead of a movie being exactly being about exactly what it's about. And that is just like, all right, come on to me. In a way, yes. In a way, no. <laughs> In a way, again, like. There is a reason why certain great movies flop in a box office yeah. because nobody goes to see them, and there's right. certain movie and there's a, there's a reason why Fast X made so much money and Fast because it's nine- awesome. Yes, <laughs> so like you know, I'm just saying again. I know this is a huge you know like I'm uh, you know I'm just simplifying everything, but yeah. there are reasons, and that's all I'm trying to say. And uh, just you know, like quick point about the character development. I believe there is a character development, especially for Julia Roberts' character. But again, it's tying with the ending. Mm. It's not not going anywhere. Like there is an actual scene where you can see her shifting, and I thought, oh, okay, we're gonna build up, build up to, on some on this, and we no, and we won't because the movie just decides to do one thing, and I'm like, 
what? Okay, cool. Um, Luke, when I saw that you had this rated significantly higher than me, I had uh, like Vietnam PTSD flashbacks <laughs> to our conversation about the creator. I knew this was coming again. Um, so <laughs> it, it lived up to my expectations. Let's move on though, because we got to keep it moving. To Maestro, written and directed and starring uh, Bradley Cooper and starring Carrie Mulligan. The love story, this love story chronicles the lifelong relationship of conductor-composer Leonard Bernstein and actress Felicia Montalegre Cohn Bernstein. Uh, I thought this was high side of okay. Same. Same. Excellent. Let's move on. May, December. No. <laughs> um, even divorcing the idea that I know who Bradley Cooper is as a person um, mm-hmm. and that he wants the Oscar so bad <laughs> watching so this movie. Bad. Watching this Very movie, bad. I could tell that the person making it wants the Oscar so bad. Um, mm-hmm. Because apart from like the Snoopy balloon scene and um, one scene where Felicia's walking away from the camera and, you know, and she's getting smaller and, and the crowd looking at Bernstein is big. Um, a lot of the visual stuff just feels unmotivated and feels like it's shot that way because he wants the Oscar and because he knows how to be clever with his camera placements. Um mm-hmm. Like the other parts are good, but uh, otherwise it, it just felt like that. Um, this is the relationship between Felicia and and Leonard is kind of at the center, but also it's about who Leonard is as a person. And it's also like about the difference between being a, a composer and a conductor, which I think is really an interesting um, dichotomy there and how it's difficult to be both at once because they're a very different type of person needs to be each. Um, but then it just kind of loses its focus on that and it doesn't really stay in there. Um, and my last big point is that I think Rocket Raccoon is easily <laughs> Bradley Cooper's <laughs> best performance of the year because I think this is kind of a bad performance. I didn't have problems with the performances. For me, the main issue with the movie was I, I've i heard of, uh, you know, Bernstein before. Bernstein, yeah. And Bernstein, oh, sorry, Bernstein. I never know how to pronounce it. I do apologize. Uh, I've heard of him before. And I don't think I know much more about him after watching this movie. Like, I might have learned one or two facts. And I, as you mentioned with Ferrari, like, you didn't know who Enzo was. I This is how I felt. Like, Maestro did nothing for me when it comes to any character work. Because if you make a bi- biopic about a certain guy and a certain somebody who is, again, bigger than life, even I know him or have heard of him, mm-hmm. you kind of need to let me in. And it seemed like it was closed off. And the movie ended and there were like big emotional scenes where they were supposed to mean something significant to me. And they didn't because I, I, I almost felt like I wasn't let in. So that was my only, well, only big issue. And that's why it was just okay. Because technically the movie is shot nicely, beautifully. I think, you know, uh, Bradley knows what he's doing behind the camera, but also he desperately wants that recognition mm-hmm. and him being powered with Spielberg is showing that Spielberg may be praising him too much if you listen to his again listen to DGA if you listen to his yeah. interview it's kind of yeah uh but by all means he seems like a good guy but it just sometimes he feels it feels like he just really really wants that that you know pat on the back like yeah buddy you're one of us and the time will come but just don't don't press too hard I'll be brief about this one because I also wrote the review on this one on the website. I'll say that Carrie Mulligan is absolutely crushing it here. 
Uh, this is one of my favorite performances of the year. I like how the movie interjects some of uh, Bernstein's music throughout the film with uh, mm-hmm. some of the score from On the Town or West Side Story without overtly saying like, oh, here's a, a Bernstein piece. Uh, right. I loved yeah. how the music is integrated. Uh, the cathedral scene with the Mahler performance is profound to me. I thought that was provocative and engaging in ways no other aspect of this movie was. There was an argument on Thanksgiving during the Thanksgiving Day Parade between Mulligan and Bradley Cooper that was fantastic. And all of that really worked. But at the same time, I know nothing about this character. There's nothing here that I don't already know from a brief synopsis or on Wikipedia, that he was a legendary composer and conductor and that he was married and that he... uh, his sexuality was ambiguous and people really could never pin him down on where he was. And it seems like the movie has no interest in telling me who Bernstein was or what made Bernstein Bernstein. And that's my biggest problem with it. Uh, Mm. It just says he's one of the most accomplished composers and conductors of all time, but we don't know why we don't know what makes him great. There's a scene at the Mm. very end where he's like teaching a class where we get to see a little bit of his insight, but that lasts all of like 30 seconds and it's over. Um, we're told that he has this great relationship with his wife that was really combative, but there's only one actual combative scene. And most of their scenes are just them like sitting together on a lawn and like talking about the clouds or things that they're thinking in their head that have nothing to do with their actual dynamic of their relationship whatsoever. Um, when we get to see uh, scenes about his sexuality, we, we, there's never any conflict there. I just, it feels like the movie wants to be all about love and how Bernstein Bernstein loved everything and how love was the central theme of his, his life and who he was as a person, which is fine. But I, I, I just didn't find it engaging because I, I don't know anything about this character. I, I made this joke in my review, but I actually stand by, I know more about the fake story about the Cheetos guy from flaming hot than I know about Leonard Bernstein after watching this movie. And that's not a joke. Like, I mean, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. Like the fake Cheetos movie told me more about that character and his dynamic with his family and his relationships and who he was as a person. than this movie tells me anything about Bernstein. And I found that to be very lackadaisical. Um, and this does get pretentious. Uh, you know why some of this movie had to be in black and white. I don't know. Uh, it just felt like they wanted to, or the aspect ratio that they wanted in an Academy ratio. Um, and it is wild to me that they're like, oh, this movie should get like the makeup Oscar. And it's really largely for his nose prosthetic, which to me, I just think of like Ocean 13 and Matt Damon wearing the fake nose. And he's like, the nose plays. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, is the fake nose prosthetic really worth all the accolades this is receiving for uh, makeup? And I just, it's just, it's wild. Some of the conversations I'm hearing about this movie. Again, uh, I might be in the minority. I, it, there are a lot of people that really love this. I know Dicer himself found this to be one of the most moving films of the year. And that's awesome. Uh, if people are really loving this, that's great. Uh, I just, man, it really did not connect for me on that level. Same. Yeah, it's not about him as a, as a person, not about him as a composer. Like, it doesn't no. fill in the gaps for either one. Um, mm-hmm. Let's move on to May, December, directed by Todd Haynes, starring Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, Charles Melton. 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple buckles under the pressure uh, when an actress arrives to do research for a film about the past. I, I copy and paste these synopses and don't even read them until I'm reading them live. So that's kind of why I'm chuckling about the 
a married couple because yeah that's that's all it is uh <laughs> yeah. not, nothing weird about this married couple nope not um, at all. luke what did you think of may december Kind of a, as a as a Godzilla, it came out of nowhere, and I low side of loved it. Uh, I thought it was just okay. <laughs> Ooh. Here's some good conversation. I high side of liked it because, um, like I was saying about another movie we were just talking about. Oh, leave! <laughs> like I was saying about leave the world behind. I don't know what to make of this movie uh, mm-hmm. thematically, apart from like literally what it's about. Um, mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think the way it goes about being what it's about is mm-hmm. amazing. Like, I have no notes for it other than that. It's a visual treat. I have not really ever connected with Todd Haynes movies, but I've always thought they're visual treats. So to find this one enjoyable and for it to still be a visual treat, like there's a scene where people are in the hospital with a wall cutting the frame down the middle with one side being the dark, one side being the light. Is very mm-hmm. that Here's... It's interesting comparison to leave the world behind because I think that's on the nose and a little bit cheesy, but it's not showy about it. Like it, the point is kind of that it's cheesy and that's all that the Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman characters really deserve is the cheesiness. Um, And then on top of that, it has some real heart and emotions, especially the roof scene that everyone's been citing between Charles Melton and his son. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the best movie moments of the year. Do you want to take it? Um, Sure. Again, uh, It's not that I didn't like this. Uh, I think Haynes is great as the director. I think these performances are terrific, particularly Portman and Melton. Um, I love the themes that it's going for about uh, how the media is complicit in these kinds of stories and and not even just complicit. They are sometimes the worst aggressor. Um, And uh, I liked a lot of what this movie was doing. I like the kind of campy humor to it. Uh, It is a dark comedy. I know some people were really shocked when this was nominated for best comedy film at the golden globes, but this is a black comedy. Uh, I mean, the original score alone uh, should kind of key you into that. It has a mind of its own throughout this movie with some of the times. Is it not an original score though? Like it's from something. Uh, It's not a fully original score. Some elements are original. Some are from like a show, I think from France or something. Um, But, uh, but the score like is just unhinged throughout this film. Uh, coming in at some of the weirdest times, some of these line re- line readings, especially Julianne Moore with her like lisp, mm-hmm. is it's just like it's comical. Uh, I really enjoyed a lot of that. What I didn't like is that I don't think that the movie ever ha- uh, gives Melton that character his day. The closest it comes is that rooftop scene, which is terrific. Uh, but there's a scene in the bedroom right before the graduation where Melton finally has the courage to stand up to Moore and. And wants to have an honest conversation and more brushes them aside and the scene cuts out and we never get that. And Mm -hmm. there's an argument to be made that that's intentional because that goes along with the theme of the movie about how the media doesn't care and no one actually cares about the real victims. But my response to that would be, okay, but you are still the movie trying to tell a story that subverts that theme. Like that's the whole point is you're trying to say that the way the media treats these things is wrong. So we need to do better. And by the movie intentionally cutting that scene short and not giving Melton his day, that character, his day when it's, a, it's not even related to the media. Like Portman's not there. It's not about the movie and that character that they're making about their story. This is a one-on-one conversation between Melton's character and Moore's character and the privacy of their own bedroom. That is the insight. That's the moment where you can actually have Melton, have a little bit of catharsis 
and the movie robs it from him. And it I just think, felt really I, gross to me that the movie took that away. It I doesn't even it need to give away. him the answers that he wants. It just needs to let him have his speech. And I don't feel like the movie let him do that. And it made a really sour, icky taste in my mouth. And I've never been able to get over it. So. He doesn't need a speech because he's a very internal character the entire time. He doesn't know how to speak his mind. He's never developed that that part. Because again, the movie's about a uh, 30 or 40 something woman having a relationship with a high school or going to prison for it, coming out and then mm-hmm. marrying him. Um, yeah. And he yeah. never emotionally developed. Um, and it's based off a true story, whether directly or indirectly. Um, so he doesn't, I don't think he needs a speech because I think there are moments after that scene that you're talking about where we see him making facial expressions at different points, um, especially at a graduation scene that, are really cathartic for me. He finally under like he finally feels free in that moment, um, and I don't think that giving him a speech would have really fit the character at all. Um, I'm sorry to cut you off, Luke, because I know you yeah. had something to say and you haven't had your moment yet. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, like I agree with you, Robert, and I would just add one one thing because I don't think in that scene, what are you talking about, Heath? It's not about a media. Because this movie is not just about media being the main perpetrator. It's also about emotional abuse. And yeah. it's and he, in that scene, it's greatly displayed, actually, how a relationship like this, this parasociological relationship, would have, dis, would have worked. And actually, probably, in those instances where you know, we know of these relationships, uh, would probably work. Where people, you know, you often hear this argument. I, that's what I actually wrote in my review. You often hear this argument uh, if it happens to an older woman and a smaller boy. Oh, he should be lucky. You know, oh, she, was she hot? Yeah. That's not the point. That's not the point. And this is the scene, right? The scene is about him finally kind of slow, you know, slowly understanding or maybe bubbling down. This is not right. And I feel weird. And I feel icky. And I don't understand why. And that scene, as he had that one big speech where he actually wanted to have the honest conversation, the movie didn't shut him down. Julian Moore's character shut him down because she knows deep down what she's done is wrong. She knows, she realizes deep down she is a predator. And so that the movie didn't shut him down. She shut him down. And she made that. She makes him, makes herself to be the savior while she's being the predator. And I, that is why I, I'm very high on it because when the movie ended, mm-hmm. I was like, this started weirdly, but there is a point for that weirdness. This is there is a point for that ickiness. And as much as is it about media, it's more about the emotional abuse that comes with this kind of relationship, where there's a large age gap. Not even large. This is inappropriate. This is, this is like this is actual rape. This is statute, statutory rape, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and this this was the point. So the movie, I I don't think. You know, he had this moment, and again, the graduation scene had this moment where he went through something he probably wouldn't have been able to go through in this world because he was robbed of that. He was robbed of his childhood. He was robbed of his adulthood because he suddenly became this media sensation due to this relationship. And when he married her, I think that was the kind of movie saying, "This is the thing." He doesn't know what what else he's supposed to do because he hasn't grown up. He's mentally, he's, you know, physically, yes, he's a grown man, but mentally he's not grown up. And that's the point of that scene. At least that was the point of that scene to me. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything you guys said. And to to phrase it differently, because I might have come across, I'm not looking for like some big speech. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. looking for like a big huzzah moment. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do think it is in his character to finally stand up to her. Um, just just as uh, e- even as a child. Standing up. Yeah. What? I think that was the extent of his standing up. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I, I feel like even as a petulant child, which again, he's a child trapped in an mm. adult body, uh, eventually a child explodes um, and has something to say. And it it felt like... He explodes in Natalie Portman, that, though. What? He expl- Sorry, he explodes in the Natalie Portman scene where she is kind of taking advantage of him because that's the other angle that sure. she's evil to. I- and again, that's the kind of intertwining of that, you know, that dynamic, isn't it? Because yeah. in a way, he, he, she is portraying his partner, right? So he actually stands up more to Natalie's partner character because there is no history, there's no intimacy with that, you know, with her character. That's that's why he blows into her face much more than he ever would into Julianne Moore's character. And if you actually read about um, uh, the real case, this is at least somehow based on exactly the same thing happened where mm-hmm. the man didn't divorce anything, uh, the, wife, the wife, and, and uh, he only spoke up after everything after she died. Because, again, like I, 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 I'm a friend with, with, a, with a girl who's actually studying psychology and studying this, and we talked about this movie and how when you're in it, for us, it's, you know, yes, as you say, the, oh, the child blows up in your face eventually. Not in this level, not in that kind of, uh, because there's a there's a layer, there's an inappropriate layer that shouldn't be there, but it's there. And that's why Julian Moore's character, he's, she is keeping him on that leash. And there's a power dynamic where the power dynamic shouldn't be, shouldn't be there. That's why he would never have that scene. That's why he never, never will slam the door. And in reality, those people who are trapped in those relationships, they never slam the door. They simply wait until something happens. Most often not, the older person dies. And only then they are able to heal and actually live their life and maybe even grow up mentally, quote unquote. And that's why I, th- I think on, on a rewatch, this will go much higher in my, in my rating. Me too. Yeah, um, and it's very possible that on rewatch, I, I will feel very different about this. Sure. Okay. Let's move on to poor things. Uh, Luke, last one you didn't get to. Sorry about this. Um, no. Directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef. The incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Belle Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox, unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter, a.k.a. God. Uh, I added that a.k.a. At, at the end. I love poor things. I think it's great. Um, briefly, I typically really vibe with uh, uh, Yorgos movies, but that is because I am the cynical dark person that I, not dark, I'm a cynical person that I am who likes the cynicism that he brings to his movies. Um, but I like also that he took it a step further in this one. He bring he displays that cynicism, uh, that darkness, that pessimism about the world. And then takes it a step further and says, hey, look, there's also beauty. There's the chance for joy and pleasure and uh, exploration. There's so much that life has to offer. Um, And the way that society is set up is pretty arbitrary. And the people who are in charge of it are oftentimes, you know, total clowns. And uh, they're only in charge of it because they put themselves in charge. And we don't need to keep following along with what they have to do or what they want to do. So on top of all that, 
It has great messages. It's really, really funny. Emma Stone's almost never been better than this, except for On the Curse, which is <laughs> airing right now. Uh, and I love Emma Stone. She's one of my favorites. So it's it's just cool to see it embracing the darkness and taking it a step further and becoming positive out of it. Mark Ruffalo is also easily the best I've ever seen him. He dan- There's one scene where he dances with Emma Stone and it hilarious i love it it's hilarious i didn't know he had those kind of moves in him um it's it's great (laughs) i i uh i really liked this movie high side of liked it low side of loved it uh again uh lanthimos is just a vibes kind of check if if you're on his wavelength you're gonna have fun and if you're not that's totally fine because this movie's not going to be for everyone but for the people that are on this wavelength you're going to have a great time I just love the aesthetic of it all. Uh, It feels like you're living in a watercolor matte painting throughout most of the movie. These costumes are bizarre, but believable in this world that we live in, this hyper-realistic world. Same with the performances. Ruffalo is great. Uh, I think it's his best performance in Spotlight. Uh, Defoe, as always, is terrific. Uh, Rami Youssef is great here. Of course, Emma Stone is the darling. Uh, She is fantastic throughout this entire film. Um, I love the themes that it's playing with, uh, the concept of, of life, uh, in throughout its various stages from childhood through adulthood and accepting uh, a sense of mortality and how that impacts life, uh, where we sit in society and what our decisions, uh, how they impact society around us and how society impacts us, uh, what social conditions actually matter and what they mean to us. Should we even care about societal standards? This movie has a lot to say and to point out kind of the the foolishness of the world around us and what things that we think matter really don't matter and the things that do matter, we don't give enough attention. There's so much that this movie is doing and it's doing it while being wildly entertaining, incredibly funny with some of the most sharp and funny line readings you've heard all year. Um, it's just It's just wild. It's a fun time. The only real critique that I have of it is I think it's a bit too long. I wish it had been about 15 minutes shorter. Uh, I think would have been nice uh, towards the end of the second act. I think it starts to drag a bit, um, especially as the third act kind of shifts where it goes with this, uh, this uh, military. Is he a general? No. Well, something I forget like his, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't some, remember exactly what it is, but yeah. Some, some kind of military character comes in and has a, a presence uh, in the story that had not been there previously. And then the m- movie takes a turn. Uh, I-, I think all that works though. Um, it just, it-, it felt a little bit long. Um, also, I would like to say that the- I think this is a, a really great pro feminist uh, film uh, a- about what it means to be a woman. Not that I can personally speak to that, but I, I think inherently those themes are there and very visible. Um, and I, I thought that was very powerful as well. So really enjoyed this. Um I I agree with everything he said. Uh, I was even going to add on my only nitpick is also that it's a little bit too long and the end feels tacked on, even if it does feel natural from where the story story was going. Yeah. Um, as for your feminist point, obviously I agree with that. I found it interesting, uh, a movie that we're not talking about, but I saw All of Us Strangers, um, which is about the uh, gay experience and being a heterosexual person. I obviously don't have that experience much like I don't have the experience of being a woman that uh, poor things shows. Um, But I like both of those movies that they're able to feel like they're about that, but also they bring something very universal and very basic 
uh, when it comes to what it's like to be human. Um, so it's going to be relatable to the people who obviously share those identities, um, but that they're able to reach out to just more people who don't relate to those identities, but even more speaks to their quality, I think. Um, and I just want to give it props there. Let's move on to <laughs> Rebel Moon, which I think is a hilarious <laughs> movie to come after this. Um, directed by Zack Snyder, starring Sofia Boutella, Michelle Huisman, and Ed Screen, both of whom played the same character on uh, Game of Thrones, and I think that's pretty fun. Um, when a peaceful settlement on the edge of a distant moon finds itself threatened by the armies of a tyrannical ruling force, a mysterious stranger living among its villagers becomes their best hope for survival. Um, Heath, we already know you loved this, so Luke, what did you think? Yeah. <laughs> best movie ever? 10 out of 10. No, it's a low side of hated. I don't know. Like, oh, man. Hate. Low side of hate? <laughs> uh, no, oh, sorry. Sorry. High side of hate. Like, high side of didn't like it. Some Someplace in between. It's not okay. a great movie. Heath, what did you actually think? Oh, I hated this movie. This is garbage. <laughs> I, I'm going to be a little bit higher than you, but, like, not defending you. Hmm. Like, maybe low side of okay, high, mo- more accurately high side of didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I thought it was funny Heath, that you said bizarre costumes a minute ago for poor things. <laughs> I thought that was my main thing that I couldn't stop shaking when watching Rebel Moon. Uh, the, <laughs> the costumes are bizarre. Some of them look like they're in Lord of the Rings. Some of them look like they're in Star Wars. Some of them look mm-hmm. like they're actual Nazis. Some of them mm-hmm. look like I could walk out my front door in the summertime and that's what people <laughs> might be wearing. Uh, Ed Screen wears a suit and a tie at one point. So it's just like, what is going on here? Um, for some reason, the thing that I focused on most was the costumes, but there's so much else that is not very good about this movie. And I'll let one of you guys take it away first. Uh, I have I'll just simply say that I wrote this review before I watched the movie. And I, I said oh, yeah. and, and on Letterboxd that if the movie actually does anything different i will delete this review but if it ends up being exactly this i will post this review and then it ended up being exactly this thing because this is Zack snyder at his worst tendencies uh dude needs to get another screenwriter he he should not be writing his own movies this is his really crappy star wars ish seven samurai film that he apparently really wanted to make a real star wars movie out of Mm -hmm. and it just it's really bad. I hated hilarious. this dialogue. I hated these characters or lack of characterization. Uh, I the slow mo here is is so <laughs> Zack Snydery. It's insane. Really, the only thing I liked is some of the creature designs. I love that like spider fight. Thought that was cool. The um, hippogriff. But like other than that, nope. Don't care. This was awful and a waste of time. I will not be watching the three hour director's cut whenever that comes out. And I already hate that I'm going to watch part two when that comes out next year. It wouldn't be a Snyder movie if there wasn't a director's cut, would it? No. <laughs> I my thoughts are pretty much the same as you, Heath. I would I would sum it up in a different way. I used to be a very big fan of Zack Snyder, and I think where I stopped being a fan is about 2015 or so, where I spotted where this dude doesn't seem to be, for a lack of a better world word, evolving. And this movie is the prime example. The sh- you've seen all the show. This is a copy of a copy of a copy of a great masterpiece. Whether the great masterpiece is Seven Samurai or Star Wars, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, yeah. the, the, you've seen the shots. You've seen the slow-mo. You've seen everything this movie has to say. You've seen it in much better movies. But Zack Snyder has amassed this cult following where 
for many people, whatever it touches, it's gold. For many, whatever it touches, it's not gold. It's the opposite. But we cannot swear. Uh, what I'll say, again, as a somebody who used to actually like his style, it seems like he's been stuck in this one lane for about 10 plus years. And it's just getting very tiring. I honestly don't think I'm... I, I don't. I cannot see the world where I would check out a part two. I was not interested. This, you know, this is a part one movie. It felt like one third of a movie. This felt like literally, a, you know, a first, like a third of a. It's movie. a first act. Yeah, it's a first act. Yeah, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. It's a first act of a movie where it basically boils down to, hey, we need to recruit people. Oh, are you in? No, I'm not in because of reasons. Then fight scene happens. Oh, I'm in now. Thanks. Hey, we need to recruit this person. Are you in? Yes, I'm in. But let me let me tame this animal. Okay, cool. Well, next scene. Oh, DJ Manhinsu is there, and but he doesn't get the fight scene. He gets a bath. Great. Next scene, and it's just uh, I uh, just know it's tiring. As a person who used to defend Zack Snyder, this is not defend. This cannot be defended. I'm sorry. Just it fails on every single line of what makes movies great. He, I understand his favorite movie is Seven Samurai. If it if that's the case, he needs to rewatch it more often. <laughs> that's a good line uh I, i'm going to lightly defend Zack snyder if only just saying like he his visual style does work on me so like the action is kind of fun like even though the hippogriff scene is literally just a hippogriff scene from harry potter i thought yep. that it was fun and i uh the slow motion is nowhere near as bad as it was in Zack snyder's justice league um yep. and i i that's like a low the, bar not to trip over. Sure. Yeah. I like the, uh, I like his slow motion. Like it's cool images to see and to look at. Um, it's so, cool images to see. I'm so, sorry to jump in. It's cool image to see if it makes sense. If a rice falls down on the ground, it doesn't. <laughs> like the movie, I'll, I'll say again, as a me who used to be, a, a, who unbashingly has 300 in the top 10 of movies of all time. This is how <laughs> big of a fan I used to be. Yeah. The, this movie is also all CGI. And so, therefore, they are not even... It's not beautifully shot. They are beautiful frames. They are yeah. not, it's not even beautifully shot because yeah. everything looks digitally. Everything looks digital. You know, everything looks digital. Everything looks the same. They are not even beautiful shots. They are beautiful frames. I don't know about you guys, but I like to do... I look. I tend to look around and, like, you know, like what's on on the se- on a, on a screen in front of me. And this movie is kind of like a 3D movie used to be, where they force your perspective into, you mm. know, if you focus on this one character. If you try to focus on a different character, it's all blurry. And I was like, is something wrong with my glasses or my TV? No, that's the movie. No, it's like a new lens that he developed for Army of the Dead. Um, Let's undevelop it, okay? Let's undevelop it. Let's bin it. Looks it because weird. that's where it belongs. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just enjoy the frames. Like, I, I am a big defender of his three... DC movies. The other okay. his other movies I can take or leave. Um, okay. So I'm not. I'm in the middle of what you said. Like I'm not. Everything he touches is gold. Everything he touches is crap. I'm mm-hmm. just like I like his DC movies. Everything else is whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And this is lower than whatever for sure. It's it's got it's one or two moments. I did like the last fight at the end on the top of the thing with Ed Screen and yep. Sophia Butella. I thought that was fun. Besides that, it's a lot of trash. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll let you guys talk about Silent Night now. Directed by John Woo, starring Joel Kinnaman. A grieving father enacts his long-awaited revenge against a ruthless gang on Christmas Eve. Take mm-hmm. it away. 
Can you please start, Heath? Because we are on opposite specters, and I reckon what what are your negatives for you actually are positives for me. So I'd like to hear your you know opinion first. Yeah, I'll be brief. I I also hated this one. Uh, I John Wu is undeniably a an action genius. He literally changed the game. Uh, it's sometimes hard to remember that or recall that when you see a movie of his now, because a lot of action movies today look like his movies, but that's because of the inventions and the innovations that he did 30 years ago that mm-hmm. kind of changed how action films were made. So I'm not going to discredit him as a talent, uh, but this movie just isn't it. I, I really didn't like it. It's because of the silent gimmick and it is a gimmick. It'd be one thing if it was just the main character couldn't speak because he shot, got his vocal cord shot out and everyone else spoke around him. No, there's not a single character that speaks throughout this entire movie. All you'll get is muffled grunts or like background white noise of like a radio broadcast or something. Not a single character has a single line of dialogue and that'd work if there wasn't contrived reasons that other people were talking or weren't talking. Like I'm talking, someone will walk up behind him, be 10 feet away and then just choose to text him. His hearing still works fine. You could still talk to him, but no, the movie wants to keep up with the silent gimmick. So there's text messages that come up on the screen. Uh, and Or there will be times when he's in an action scene and he'll just stare at Kid Cudi and they'll just look at each other for like 30 seconds and not say anything when normal human beings would have dialogue in this moment. Now, again, Kinnaman's character can't talk. That's fine. But Kid Cudi can talk. And the movie is full of moments like this where it's very clear that the silent thing is not for story reasons or thematic reasons. It is for the gimmick. And once that happens and once you really pick up on that, the movie becomes a slog uh, because you're sitting there wanting things to be developed, but nothing can be developed because no one can talk about anything. So all you can ever learn about these characters is surface level stuff because we can't talk about it any further because no one can talk. And it just becomes waiting for the action to resolve itself. And when the action finally does start to resolve itself, other than a really cool oneer and a stairwell, which is admittedly really, really cool, uh, the movie just doesn't have anything to do. And it doesn't justify... It, the juice was never worth the squeeze of waiting for the action to finally come when I had to sit through this slog of a movie. So I hated this. Go off. Luke, tell okay. me why I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. I like I'm okay. I'm in the minority. Conversation over then. I'm not wrong. <laughs> yes. No, I, I I understand I'm in a minority. Most people have your opinion. I I don't necessarily love it or even like it. I'm on low side of like it, and here's why. When the first 15 minutes started, as you, I was like, I'm not quite sure if I'm gonna like this because yeah, this seems very weird. But once I got in it, I understand there is no need for dialogue. I know I don't I don't I don't think it's a gimmick. You pointed out text messaging. Well, there was his wife. She she has to text message, you know, text message him because he will not respond back. So it's much easier to communicate with somebody no, like that. She doesn't though. He she has does. to text her because he can't talk. She can talk, but she will literally walk up to him and then grab out her phone and text him anyway. That is well, a gimmick. I love you, Luke, but that is a gimmick. <laughs> she is fully capable of talking, and he is capable of hearing her. He would have to text her back, but. Mm. She does not have to text him. No, but it's kind of kind of the, uh, on a theme where he is going through, he's suffering, where and, and this is where kind of it's a revenge story about a dead kid, right? And this is more about a suffering and how he takes his toll on him and on obviously on her. But he uh, is he loses the plot. He loses the part of where he's supposed to be a husband. 
we, he was the part of where he's supposed to be a human because he's focused on this one main goal, revenge. And many people see this as a revenge movie and, oh, I'm so sick and tired of revenge movies. This is not a revenge movie. This is a revenge movie about how revenge takes your soul. This is a revenge movie and how revenge destroys you, how it destroys his life. He literally destroys his life, his relationships. It literally destroys... There's a scene where he's trying to help up a police officer during a shootout. And he wants to, he tries to help out, but eventually, and you know, inevitably, he gets her killed. And this is this is the point of the movie where, if you're not gonna move on and if you're not gonna try to resolve the big trauma you've just been through, it doesn't matter if you're gonna talk or not. It doesn't matter if you're gonna focus on this one big thing that happened without trying to move past or not even move past it. No, resolve it in a healthy manner. You will destroy everything. You'll destroy all your relationships, all your life, and eventually you'll, you'll, you might die. Uh, the Wonder, again, The Wonder is spectacular. The The movie wasn't really that big of a slog before, until, well, first 15 minutes and maybe the last 10 minutes or so. Like, there was a, some scenes, again, there was, yes. I Again, I'm not even liking it as much, but I understood the point. And once I get into the vibe of the movie, I actually appreciated it for what it was. And, and this is not a revenge movie. So just, you know, just because I, I, I'm hearing this common critique of, you know, this is promoting revenge. I'm sick and, sick, sick and tired of it. It's not. If you, you know, if you actually get past this and if you actually look at it, what it's trying to say, it's not. So that's that's all. We can move on. Sounds like I won't be seeing it either way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to Wonka, directed by Paul King, starring Timothy Chalamet, Olivia Coleman, Kyle Lane, Patterson Joseph and many, many more. With dreams of opening a shop in a city renowned for its chocolate, a young and poor Willy Wonka discovers that the industry is run by a cartel of greedy chocolatiers. I'll start off real quick and just say, I like this. It, it was fun. I actually love this movie. I've seen it twice now already, um, and it only got better for me the second time. Uh, I really love this. So this is where I'm going to be the outliner, and I'll Ooh. say it was just okay for me. Hater. Um, yes, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Heath, what made you love it because i don't want to get into my negatives too soon but to me it was just kind of uh airy but a good time so i didn't really get any more depth yeah um and the first time i saw it i thought it was fun uh and and had a little bit of magic to it but it was really the second time that it solidified it for me and again we've all said this we've said this a couple times with other films like hey might feel different on a rewatch sure well and that's just the magic of what happens sometimes when you can see a movie for a second time you can take more out of it uh i really just think that this movie understands what it's trying to be and really works succinctly as a great family movie and has a lot of magic to it about hope and optimism about found family um uh, about uh, communal interest in need and want. Um, it just seemed to really come together for me and coalesce into something really special upon the second viewing. Uh, the music, I think, works really well. There are some songs that are still stuck in my head that I'm listening to in the car uh, on, as I'm driving to work. Um, the performances are hammy, but in the best way. Uh, I think Chalamet is actually doing a really great job here. Sure, it's not the cynical Gene Wilder, but he hasn't been through life yet. You know, this is way early on. The Gene Wilder uh, Wonka has seen things and, and he's jaded. And, you know, we now have this bright kind of optimism, which is really fun to see. 
this character There's even a hint of him being able to turn into Wilder at the very end when everyone else has their own little families. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's really cool in that regard. I thought some of the supporting performances were great. I thought Hugh Grant was actually really good as the Oompa mm-hmm. Loompa. And yeah. I thought that he was in there just the right amount where like he wasn't in there so much that I was getting sick of him. There, sick of him. He was there just enough to like get that sweet candy taste out of it where it's just like, oh, that was perfect. Uh, I thought Olivia Coleman was hilarious. Um, you know, there's a lot that I, I really liked here. I thought the noodle character in that storyline was really wholesome and heartwarming. Uh, it may have been very simple, uh, simplistic in terms of its narrative execution and just trying to find a sense of family and find the mom. But all of that really worked for me. Um, again, it, it, it just there was a magic to it. Uh, I saw it in my in my wife's eyes. I saw it in my kid's eyes. Um, and that's also to say just this is very visually pretty to look at um, this. The production design here, although some of it's green screen, uh, some of it's not. And like when they go and they, they actually build Wonka's shop, that was incredible to me. Um, uh, I love these costumes. Again, these musical numbers like the cabaret dance uh, that the, the chocolate cartel does underground is hilarious. Um, there's just humor here. I, it's, it's essentially Paul King bringing his Paddington energy to the Wonka franchise, to the Wonka brand. And it just worked for me. Do I think it's as good as the Paddington movies? No, but do I think it's still a, a really great movie that families will enjoy? Absolutely. See, you know, what's funny, Heath, I will not dispute any single thing you (laughs) just said, except for one part. And it's the most crucial part. You said the magic has worked for you and it pulled you. I'm not, you didn't say you pulled it in a movie, but the magic has worked for you. I never felt that magic. And that was my big issue. Like I, everything, uh, the, this is the movie where the pieces of the puzzle are much better than the actual overall picture. I enjoyed Olivia Coleman. I enjoyed the character of Noodles. I, I really enjoyed Timothy Chalamet. I thought he was perfect in that role. I really appreciated that this is Wonka, the beginnings. So it's, he's not jaded. He's not, you know, that will come later. It never just fully gripped me into that magic world. It never once transported me where I would believe, hey, I'm on this adventure with those guys. I'm on, you know, I'm part of this family. I'm part of this journey. It was in a way kind of like Maestro. It almost felt like it kept me at the arm's length for whatever. Again, this might be a me issue. And on a, if I were to rewatch it, it will be different. But on my one single rewatch in a cinema, I couldn't, I've never gotten into that movie in the two hour or almost two hour runtime, and that was my big problem. Where Paddington did pull me in. I, I think I agree with both of you, and that's kind of why I landed and liked it. Um, I like all the stuff that he's talking about. I agree with your negative, Luke. Um, except I maybe felt that a little bit more, uh, felt the heart a little bit more than you did, Luke. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt the everything a little bit less than Heath. So I land right in the middle between you guys. Yeah. Um, my main issue is probably a bit surprising and it's that Chalamet doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie for me because I love Paddington, the Paddington movies. I love mm-hmm. that they're, it's all very British feeling. Um, <laughs> and I love that, that sense of humor that they bring. And this movie Wonka brings that like my favorite scene was the, the chocolate cartel dance number like under underneath the church like that was hilarious to me it, that's where i was thought like if the whole movie kept up that energy and that that 
tone, I could have easily given it, you know, four or five stars. But um, I'm not saying Chalamet is bad. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that he's good while everyone else is great. Um, the The whole movie is good to me because it mm-hmm. rides on the back of Chalamet, who's good. It's good with mm-hmm. great moments because when it cuts to other scenes or when it has him interacting with some of the other characters, there are like really great moments. But overall, mm-hmm. um, since he's he just operates on a little bit of a different level, he doesn't have that same sort of sensibility as as everything that I really love in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. That's ultimately why what makes it good instead of great for me. But yeah, again, I, I agree with everything else that you guys are saying. <laughs> Yeah, and again, it's just another one of those kind of vibes things. If you can get on the movie's right. wavelength, it's yes. probably going to really work for you. And it just really, and again, I even appreciated it more the second time around than I did the first time. But like by the end of this movie, like I was crying. Like this definitely got me and brought me to tears uh, when we kind of see the secret of the chocolate, and uh, and when it does start playing pure imagination again at the end, like. Mm-hmm. nostalgia gets the better of me and i was just like oh i'm over yeah, mm-hmm. tears you know but like so yeah um at bare minimum i think it's a fun family movie that most people will enjoy and if the magic if the tone if the vibes hit you just right you could really end up loving this one and again i i understand i'm in a minority here because most people seem to be much higher on it so this might this very well be just my issue you know my issue again yeah. robert to your point I would reverse it. Chalamet mm. is great. And besides Olivia Coleman, nobody, everybody else, even like I enjoyed the Noodles character, but was she like particularly great? No, but her chemistry with Chalamet was amazing. And those, that was the heart of the movie for me. Not the yeah. chocolate, not the magic. That was the heart of the movie. And if, I don't know, there was something that was just stopping me. I just felt like I wasn't let in on that adventure with the characters. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, Heath has to run. Uh, Luke and I are going to stick around for an extra five minutes and hit spoilers on Leave the World Behind and Godzilla. But Mm -hmm. Heath, uh, thanks for hopping on. Thanks for sticking around for such a long episode. This is a once a year. No, I enjoyed it. In fact, I would love to keep going. I just, I I have somewhere to be. But thank you so much. I had a blast. I love talking to both you guys about all these movies. You have a good rest of the day. Love you all. Yeah, happy new year. All right, Luke. Let's uh, hop into Godzilla spoilers and then leave the world behind spoilers. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Godzilla minus one, we're going to fully spoil it. I think it's just going to be brief clarifying which moments yeah. we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And then after that, we'll, we'll uh, talk about leave the world behind. But beyond yeah. that, we've hit everything. So thanks for listening. If you have to hop out now. Um, you guys were talking about... Um, Noriko coming back to life. Yeah. Yeah. Or okay. is she even the wife? Did they even get married? No, that was another <laughs> no. thing. Yeah, the girlfriend. So yeah, technically that. a girlfriend. So basically, yeah, the, uh, because your point was him ejecting himself, right? Right. That's I didn't know if yeah. you meant that or her coming back. No. No, they, see, and I think this is where Heath and I were in sync. So the, yeah. him ejecting himself to me was all the thematic, thematically, sorry, the full circle moment where he, we don't see the conversation that happens with the mechanic, but we see something is up. And then we see it He after. says, like, I have one more thing to show you. And then it Yes, cuts. exactly. And then we see it after, where, you know, we see, you know, we see him ejecting himself, 
we see and we see that conversation happen uh, after that and when he says don't feel like you need to die this is not your responsibility the, your war has you know is over you know mm. you're done you don't have to die and this to me was like where thematically where his journey like you know should have finished so the so, wife scene even though again my, was my heart happy that she miraculously survived yes was she supposed to survive no she's dead I, i'm sorry but she did <laughs> like she is dead as, as as this year like no she did yeah. this is just this is no no but again this is a very tiny very tiny thing where probably will i will not even care about once i rewatch it because this movie is great and everybody should see it and support it yeah, for me, like it, it didn't really bug me one way or another. I was just like, okay, they found her, whatever. It's a contrivance, but she's mm-hmm. alive and it, it's manipulating me emotionally and it works. You know, like it didn't yeah. bug me that much. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to say other than it didn't yeah. bug me. So let's move on again. Leave the world behind full spoilers here because you had something that you wanted to say very specifically about the ending that, that bothered you. Well, I, I thought it's most people that border where the movie just ends. We get into everything. We finally kind of understand what's happening. And the, as Heath mentioned, there's no character development. This was my point. About five minutes before the movie ends, Julia Roberts, the, her character is going through this, like, you know, so I guess she was kind of racist. Okay. <laughs> don't know like i'm not, i haven't read the book so i'm not quite sure whether that plot was like you know should have been racial okay cool but okay anyway uh but her journey with the daughter where in the, i know this in a book it's actually his wife right so okay. in a move in a in a book it's actually it's actually a man and his wife arrive to the house and they claim you know they own this house that's their house and they switched it to the daughter. And I think that's actually worked because in throughout the journey, you see them getting, you know, her being bad mom, even towards her own kids. Mm-hmm. Like she's that kind of parent where she replaces her parenting with a, with a, with a screen. That's why I didn't think the read for them reruns were, you know, not knowing what the reruns were, were not that, you know, yeah, because again, they watch their show on their iPad. They right. don't watch it on a TV. They don't watch CBS. What is CBS? <laughs> But uh, but to, so to me, where she finally, where they have that big scene, where she finally the motherly instincts kick in, and she defends this child she has no affiliation with, and you know, and they actually bond over that. I thought, all right, we're getting someplace finally, and no, we're not. Movie just ends, and I'm fine with movies being about one thing and leave the viewer to decide what happens next that's not a problem but if i invest two hours and 20 minutes into the movie i would like some resolution please i don't want some sort of as as he said kiddie pool like shallow themes about this these couple of things we that didn't bring anything new to it and then you just happen to end because reasons right so i don't know how you felt well, you hated it, so... Yeah, I, I, I hated the movie. Uh, here's my thing. I'm not defending the movie, but it tracks mm-hmm. with what the movie was that that's where it would end. Like, that's mm-hmm. just another place where it felt like it's up its own ass, where it's like, she puts in the Friends DVD and the Friends mm-hmm. theme where it says, I'll be there for you, which is ironic because we're not there for each other yeah. as a society. And it ends right there. And it's like supposed to imply that 
she's there. The rest of the family is about to find her in the bunker and then they're going to do whatever and survive. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon has his own bunker. So Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts mm-hmm. are all going to show up and they're going to find a way to survive together for a while because the family of that house is dead or wherever they are. Um, like, don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem with the way, the way it ending. It, sorry, the way it ended. Yeah. I have a problem with the ending in a way that it didn't earn this ending. Like, the movie didn't uh, earn this. It didn't, you know, we finally were getting someplace yeah. with the characters. We are finally getting somewhere, especially with Julia Roberts, with the Mo- Mohala, I want to say her name is? Mohala, yeah. Yeah. And, like, we were finally getting someplace with especially those two. And then the movie ends. So, I, like, I kind of suspected, the, you know, it's going to be one of those endings where it just ends. Fine. Uh-huh. If you earn it, fine. You didn't earn This movie didn't. Leave the world behind movie. You didn't earn this movie. You didn't earn, uh, earn, this, earn ending. this ending. So, like, I was just like, what? The Why ending, would I rewatch it? The ending in particular, like, didn't stand out to me the way it did you guys. Because it didn't earn anything else. <laughs> like, the uh, movie didn't well, earn it. Like I said, it mm-hmm. just tracked. I was like, of course, it's this is the ending. So mm-hmm. that's that's why I was just like, okay, I'm I'm glad that it's finally over. Um, <laughs> that was basically it. No, yeah, like I was gonna say, it wasn't a slog for me. Like, uh, right. I thought the movie actually paced, you know, was paced well. Were there some scenes where, like, well, that's convenient, like the mother being on a plane, and then mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he's uh, Maharshal's character. He can he sees these two planes crash. Well, one uh, he sees the crash, and then second one crashes as he's there. Was it kind of on a nose? Yeah. Uh, but I again, I really liked where the, what this movie was talking about. Was it a bit too shallow? Sure, sure. But I like the ambition. Again, but the ending just very, like bothers me. Like I could get in board with that. I could get in board behind a movie, and by the looks of it, I'm one of the few people who could actually yeah. get in board with this yeah. movie. And you lost me that movie. Like you know, so that now I know how it ends. I have no, no nothing. No, you know, uh, no reason to go back to it. Even if I wanted to pick up on something more, no, because I know how it ends, and it's just frustrating to me. Well. I think this was a one exception in an otherwise excellent month because I thought December overall was very good. And I'm glad that I saw most of these movies and that we got to talk about them. Um, Same. And I'm very, I'm very miserable. I didn't get to see poor things specifically. Like poor things is the one major one color purple again, by, based on a discussion, it seems like I've seen it, but it's musical. So I, I'm not that worried. And I will pretty see much, it. but the poor, but the poor things just bothers me. And I don't understand why it's not here until uh, mid January. Well, I am looking forward to hearing your thoughts uh, when you finally do get to see it. Um, but Luke, thank you for uh joining this is always fun talking to you thank you for having me and sorry for my ramblings no i, I enjoy your ramblings i like your insights like i said i want to go rewatch uh whatever one you said something may december about. may december no i already i think it was ferrari oh yeah ferrari yeah yeah because <laughs> i already really like may december um yeah that's true but yeah Quick reminder that SIFPOP Writer's Room is part of the Studio DNA network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media. If you're interested in writing for SIFPOP.com or if you want to get in contact with us, then email writersroom at SIFPOP.com. You can join me next month as I talk with SIFPOP writers Sam and Shane 
to discuss some of the biggest movies of January 2024, which is going to have lots of great movies, I'm sure. Uh, But until next time, we have to get back to the writer's room.